Welcome back to Season 2 of Summer Reading with the Deals. This is uh, episode number 3 proper, 4 total, on Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, published in 1965, posthumously, uh, which is uh, means after her death, but it's such a Daffy Duck word, posthumously, um, that it just sounds cartoonish when you say it. So, um, Yeah, what other words have S-T-H in a row like that? I don't know. It makes you, it just makes you Daffy Duck for a yeah. second. So, um, in the Alpha episode, as you know, we discussed why we picked this collection and why Flannery O'Connor. And then, so far, we've discussed everything that rises must converge the story, and then the comforts, of, the comforts of home. Yes, and then the first that was the first episode, and then the second episode proper was uh, what we just recorded, which was. Greenleaf and The Enduring Chill. So today we're going to be talking about A View of the Woods and Judgment Day. So Judgment Day was published in this collection posthumously. Uh, she was still working on it when she died, or it, it was like near completion enough that, you know, the, her editors decided to, to include it in the, in the, in the collection. Um, originally she had planned a nine-story um, collection that had some different stories in it, including the Partridge Festival, but then she changed her mind. And um, So the article that I mentioned on the last episode, the, um, the short story cycle article, it talks about the seven uh, previously published stories. So one of those stories is A View of the Woods. It was published in 1958 in the Partisan Review. Um, and then, like I said, Judgment Day is... Uh, not published until after her death, but it is a reworking of the geranium, which is her first published story in 1946, I believe. So, um, so we'll talk about both of those stories. Whitney, let's just start, you know, start someplace with either of these, like just who, who, who cares where you go with it? We'll, we'll find our way. Well, um, I'll talk about what they have in common just for a second. Um, I, I did not do the pairings of these stories. Adam was in charge of that, but I have um, appreciated the fruitful combinations that he's um, put together. And, and it, it's easy, in a, in a sense, to, to pair stories together for this book because she has so many parallel situations that she explores, um, kind of similar characters or at least similarly placed characters. Um, these two stories both are about elderly men and um and younger women in one case it's a more of a mostly a granddaughter and in the other case it's um, a daughter but I, I think they're both explorations of what it's like to be older and what that does to your sense of power and authority um how you try to continue to exert power over your family or your circumstances or your own body um depending on the story so they're they're these really, um, in a way, I think, really um, kind of subtle and empathetic explorations of what it's like to be getting older. But then in, in other ways, she is pretty pitiless, <laughs> just like she is when she explores what any type of person is like. You know, she um, is incisive. Yeah, she reveals the heart of a person... Uh, almost as nakedly as possible, um, which I think is actually 
reflective of her own will to, to show herself and her stories. Um, a lot of writers just, they don't give you that much insight into who they are as people. I mean, uh, you know, some, some are like that and then some are, are, you know, the opposite of that. But like, I'll give you a good example, Ernest Hemingway, like, his style, even as he narrates a story as, say, Nick, uh, Nick Adams or Jake Barnes or Frederick Henry, you know, these are all basically fictionalized versions of himself. And yet, you, you really don't know Ernest Hemingway that well from reading uh, all the Nick Adams stories or reading The Silence of Rises or A Farewell to Arms. You might feel like you could kind of understand the way he was, but... Um, reading um, uh, A Movable Feast is very different in a way than reading those other works um, because it's more revelatory to Ernest Hemingway, the person, and yet even in that, he knows it's going to be published, even though it's also published posthumously. Um, He he knows that he's looking to write kind of a memoir, and, and yet it is indicative of him, but not necessarily fully revelatory of him. Well, that's interesting because I was thinking about why does it seem to us that we're understanding Flannery O'Connor by reading these stories that are never in the first person, not necessarily about a woman about around her age or in her circumstances. And to me, I, I think it's because she exposes the kind of like raw need inside of each one of us to feel good about ourselves and justify ourselves to ourselves and to others. And we try to hide that neediness and, and, and meanness and vulnerability within ourselves. And so the only way she could have really written about it so persuasively in a way that seems so real is by exploring herself because we're all trying to hide that ugly side of ourselves from each other. But so she had, it seems like she had to have explored the ugly side within herself to have so much insight. A lot of us, I think, try to hide that ugly side even from ourselves. Yeah, um, that's a great point. And a first-person narrative is not always the best place to actually show all the parts of yourself because a first-person narrator, there's often the sense that that person is projecting to the the, the listener or the reader um, what he or she would like to be or how he or she would like to be seen um, rather than what is in kind of a like really raw way. In Flannery O'Connor's story, she uses third person, but she uses free and direct discourse to jump into the character's head really frequently. In other words, she basically is still writing in third person, but you can suddenly tell that you're in the person's point of view. That, that, that it's that person thinking those thoughts. And she just leaves off a marker like he thought or she thought and leaves mm-hmm. it in the third person. Yes. Jane Austen used that strategy a lot as yes. well. Yes, um, And you have to read carefully when you read Free and Direct Discourse to make sure you know who's, kind of whose mind you're in. But all that to say, I think it frees her up. She's not in one voice all the time, so she doesn't have to capture that person's kind of self-justifications and pretenses and everything, she can really just jump right into their minds in this kind of seamless, uh, interesting way. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Now, now I 
I can't remember where I saw it, but but one of the articles that I looked at made that that very point about Jane Austen. Oh, here it is. Uh, this is from that um, Harbor Wind, Everything That Rides Must Converge, O'Connor's seven short seven story cycle. It says, using indirect interior monologue, much as Jane Austen did, she, in a sense, perches on top of the shoulders of the protagonist of a story in order to approximate the workings of the character's mind. The subtle shifting from objective narration to a character's idiom allows her to penetrate throughout the cycle the grotesque irony of the protagonist who reveals the self-righteous obsession with which he unknowingly confronts the world. And so, um, in both of these stories, we have a male protagonist... Um, you know, last time we talked about uh, Green uh, Greenleaf, which has female protagonists, and and the Enduring Jail Chill, which has a male protagonist. Um, but just that concept of she she is mirroring techniques that have happened already in literature, and I think that's part of what makes something literature is 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 it indebted to literature? Like some some stories are really not like some stories are just complete fantastic imagination you know and they don't really have a lot of um roots in literature some stories are are just kind of fluff or or, or like you know romances um and and we have to learn technique right i think it's kind of what you're getting at like as an any kind of artist musician, painter, you have to learn technique and you learn technique as a writer by studying other people's techniques and understanding what you can do. Yeah. And if you've never, like you say, if you've never studied other people's techniques, you, you might not know how to do much as a writer. Well, and it's going to take me a minute to find this, but, uh, Flannery said of William Faulkner, I think it's, this is it. Um, something, something to the extent of, um, well, that's not it. Um, something to the extent of, like, I have to steer clear of him. Um, like, it, it's like what you said about her having a one-cylinder... Um, she said you don't want to hitch your carton wagon to... Or you want to park it on the railway line when the Mason and Dixon railway is coming through or something like that. That's one thing she said about... Faulkner basically comparing him to this like steam engine that's like roaring yeah. down and she's got a little like you know mule and cart and she doesn't want to get in his way that's one thing she said about him it says I uh the real reason probably the real reason this is from habits uh, habit of being page 292 a letter to John Hawks from 1958 Probably the real reason I don't read him is because he makes me feel that with my one-cylinder syntax, I should quit writing and raise chickens altogether. So that's one of them. And then the other one, which I'm just going to have to find, uh, is that, that like, basically, you know, I have to be careful of his wake. Um, oh, shoot. Anyways. Oh, there's <laughs> that's another funny Faulkner thing. Um, maybe that's it for anyone. Um, sorry for the dead air here. Um, yeah, no, that's not. So the point being like Flannery is, is she's being, she's being herself in her writing and yet she, she's indebted to people like Faulkner or, um, Jane Austen or, you know, these literary heavyweights. And I think she wants to be, I think that's, that's what, um, 
you know, someone that wants to be within the same current uh, or the same, you know, the same river as Faulkner is someone that's trying to write literature, whereas someone that doesn't wants to be, you know, on, on dry land. And so, and yet, like yeah. the quote you read, anyone who's honest with herself is going to have some anxiety of influence, so to speak, like some yeah. anxiety about someone who is considered a great Southern writer. So, you know, kind of in the same category yeah. as you around the same time as you and who you also have res- respect for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just natural that you would want to avoid being intimidated into silence mm-hmm. by something that you do think is. I mean, I don't know if I sit down to write a poem that I want to be thinking too much about the poems that I admire by poets I love. Right. And that's just it is like, you know, the thing that you love is literature and you can articulate why. And sometimes, like you said, you don't want to be too uh, fangirl about it so that it comes across as a knockoff. Um, and so anyways, we'll talk about that concept in a little bit, but, um, one of the things that Whitney was mentioning that made me think, um, about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's like Flannery O'Connor is so transparent with these characters and where their treasure is. Um, and by doing that, I think she, she allows herself to show where her treasure is as we discussed on the Enduring Chill uh, and Greenleaf last episode, um, and, and we'll discuss it more in this episode, like her, her impetus and motivation for writing is getting ex- ex- more explicitly Christian and more explicitly, um, like, eternal-minded, and rather, you know, rather than, like, temporal-minded or earthly-minded. It's like she's getting more... As she gets closer to death, she's getting more deeply into the kingdom of heaven and less, you know, her, her roots are uprooting in, in the kingdom of earth. Hey, speaking of where your treasure is, uh, Mr. Fortune, that name, mm-hmm. uh, that name um, in and of itself, it just indicates from the beginning that he finds his treasure in money, progress, worldly things. Mr. Fortune success. Yes. So, uh, I do have a theory about, uh, you know, a, a view of the woods, which we'll get into in a little bit, but let's, let's just get, get into the story itself. So we've got Mr. Fortune, we've got Mary Fortune Pitts. So there, <laughs> there are two families within this story or two, two major families anyways, the fortunes and the pits, which is, a beautiful, I mean, it's something only Flannery O'Connor would do because it's like that's such a Pilgrim's Progress thing to do, yeah. or like Fairy Queen, where it's like this idea of like Edmund Spencer just wanted everything to be so highly allegorical, or John Bunyan wanted to. That, that there's this, this sense of like it's too obvious, it's, it's shameful to write something that's obvious, and but, yet it's not yeah. as obvious. It's obvious and it's not at the same time. So we'll keep we'll keep on that. You know, when, as we when keep you going. do that allegorical thing and then you make the characters live in spite of it, which I think I think Pilgrim's Progress does, but I think especially Fairy Queen does. Um, it's it's a beautiful thing, you know, where you're so swept up that you can forget it's an allegory and then be hit harder by the allegory because you've forgotten for a second that it's an allegory. This story is like that too. Yes, and that you know. Speaking of getting hit, this this is a, a 
a contradiction to uh, the quote that Flannery used for her own stories. Well, I know that people get killed, but don't nobody get hurt, which is like one of Ralph Wood's favorite things to say. I think I've heard him say it on like six different podcasts and and, uh, speeches that he's given. And so, you know, Ralph Wood, the senior... Uh, the senior most of, of our Flannery O'Connor historian, you know, uh, scholars, um, he, you know, he seems to have an understanding of Flannery as a person, um, in part because he actually got to hear her speak in, in, in his college. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting that he, like, uses that uh, anecdote so many times, and yet A View of the Woods is the direct contradiction of that. Like, it's it's about torturous punishment i mean it's about uh, 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 child abuse you know it's it's not um i mean it does have a violent end but it's not this yeah. kind of like well someone dies in it but it's okay because no one is like has their fingernails torn out or something like that like flannery made it clear that she wasn't trying to write like like um salacious violence or like she was, torture yeah. porn as mm-hmm. people talk about the, mm-hmm. like, the saw movies although yeah. this this gets intense for a minute it's not for a long time in the story yeah. but the violent description for about a page gives me the shudders personally oh and we will talk about it so um so just the concept of a view in the woods uh like whitney said it's about a guy named mr fortune whose name is actually mark fortune but they never mention it except that they were going to name the, the granddaughter who's who ends up being named Mary Fortune because she's a girl. Um, they mentioned that they were going to name name her after him. So Mark Fortune presumably is his full name. Although it may just be Mar- Mary. You know they were going to name him Mark. They wanted an M name and they were going to put Fortune in the name. Either way, so it's not it's not crystal clear. Although I I read it as like his name is Mark Fortune. So I could be wrong. But, um, in fact, <laughs> there's part of me wants me to be wrong, uh, as we'll get into, but, um, at least the family wanted to, uh, you know, commemorate the grandfather. Um, so here's a story, you know, her, probably her most famous story is A Good Man's Hard to Find, which is all about a grandmother. And here's a story that's all about a grandfather, um, who, uh, you know, unlike a lot of her older characters uh, in, in a lot of her stories, this one seems to be the most interested in the future and progress and, um, you know, kind of making making the most, like, like being, being a capitalist, you know, making the most out of what he has. And so what he has is a farm that, um, you know, was probably not worth much, up until the point that the, um, I think it's the EPA floods the town, and so um, they create an artificial lake, or you know, I guess it's not artificial; it's real water. But that they create a lake by uh, you know uh, letting some of the water out of the dam, and and by a re- as a result, he has lakefront property, and so now his val- his land value is incredibly high. And he wants to sell every parcel of it and then use the money to, to make Mary Fortune Pitts the, kind of the new, um, the new leader of the family, right? And to have a town there called Fortune, Georgia, hopefully, yes, too. Yes, yes. So 
it's an it's an incredibly interesting story. Although Whitney said earlier today, it's inscrutable. Um, it's just harder to make what is the allegory in this story because it, she clearly is using allegories in every story, and some are more obvious than others, and some are more debatable than others. Like my reading of the bull is the devil and Greenleaf. It, it it's possible. It's not. Uh, you know, it's it, it certainly no other scholars are saying that, so it's it's not obvious. But to me, there are some elements that that I think make it a, make a convincing case for it. And I've got you know another such reading for this story, but we'll get into that in a little bit. I think what we're running into with Greenleaf and A View of the Woods is that we can tell that the allegory refers to something spiritual. Um, Christian and spiritual, like Satan or Christ, or but it's sometimes a, the inscrutable part is what's what because yes. she's often okay. Either she's using a human being as an allegorical figure who could stand in for a spiritual, the, the workings of a spiritual power on earth, and um, human beings are not wholly good nor evil. So trying to figure out. Okay, yeah, like little Mary Fortune might allegorically be, you know, kind of working on the side of the devil or of God, but you have to really kind of think about it. Same with Mr. Pitts, or because I, I think they're they're human beings and they're flawed and they're they're yeah. they're a mixture of of good, bad, and indifferent. And Flannery O'Connor is not um, at all concerned about the kind of you know, complications of using a flawed human being as an agent of God's grace or an agent of God's work or something like that. And that's yeah. confusing for us who want to see it as more clear-cut and they're saints and they're sinners. Yeah. So the story begins, The week before, Mary Fortune and the old man had spent every morning watching the machine that lifted out dirt and threw it in a pile. So... One of my favorite things to do as a little child was watch what I call digger scoops. Uh, but, you know, you might call them a backhoe or a bulldozer, you know, these different um, earth-moving devices. And that's what they're watching is construction. They're watching, or de- in this case, destruction or, or moving of land. Um, and so the story starts with the, with the grandfather and Mary Fortune Side by side, or not side by side, they're sitting, he's on the uh, fender of the car and she's sitting above him with her feet on his, <coughs> bless you, with her feet on his shoulders, like she's standing on the shoulder of a giant, right? So, um, the construction was going on by the new lakeside on one of the lots that the old man had sold to somebody who was going to put up a fishing club. He and Mary Fortune drove down there every morning about 10 o'clock and he parked his car, a battered mulberry-colored Cadillac, on the embankment that overlooked the spot where the work was going on. The red corrugated lake eased up to within 50 feet of the construction and was bordered on the other side by a black line of woods, which appeared at both ends of the view to walk across the water and continue along the edge of the woods. So the colors in this first paragraph, to me, are very dark. You know, this, like a mulberry, red, black, like intense colors, not peaceful colors, not soft colors. Um, so, so there's this ominous feel to this story at the beginning that I think you kind of lose because you get so 
so much into the grandfather's head that it's like, you know, the, the, the story kind of begins and ends with a kind of backward, you know, go, goes back into the past and comes back to the present day um, Fight Club style narration. And I think that that's, you know, it, it, Flannery O'Connor is already setting us up like this is going to be a dark story. And then at the bottom of the page, just throw in another um, ominous note. Um, it says, she sat on the hood looking down into the red pit, watching the big disembodied gullet gorge itself on the clay. Then, with the sound of a deep sustained nausea and a slow mechanical revulsion, turn and spit it up. I love that description. Yep. So vivid, so disgusting. Progress is really not depicted as lovely here. Yeah. This, this like, grotesque image that she uses, like, like when he was saying, to, to, to reflect that progress is not this, like, clean line, you know, Mondrian painting. It, it's, it's something that r- requires a lot of disgusting things, um, and sometimes the end result is actually much more disgusting than the, you know, the process of, of changing it. Um, you know, see, for example, <laughs> you know, any uh, interstate exit with enough, like, fast food on it, it's, it's like, it, it all looks the same. It just looks, it looks like there's, there's no personality to it. It's just like, oh, oh, good, another exit with all the same things, like, five miles down the road. And that reminds me of later toward the end of the story, um, the grandfather is saying, I really want to see like a parking lot where all these pine trees are. <laughs> and he's like, a pine trunk's a pine trunk. You know, why would anybody want to see a pine trunk? And I wrote, a parking lot is a parking lot in the in the margin. But he's basically naming off these man-made things that are he says are just inherently more interesting and better than anything that he's going to see that's God made. You know. Yes. Um, and it's funny too that they're going to put up a fishing club in this spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I read um, an article that said a fishing club is where people from the city or the suburbs go to like taste nature for yes. like a weekend in a kind of mm-hmm. sanitized mm-hmm. way. So it's funny that it's not like a shopping mall or something's going up. It's a it's a fishing club. Yeah. Now it's interesting that you say that because. Um, Sure enough, Milledgeville is really close to Lake Oconee, and I think it's Lake Sinclair. Um, so, so Milledgeville does have this exact thing happen to it, um, which is, you know, it becomes kind of hotter property than it otherwise would have been because the lakes are so close. And so this story has a lot of, like, hits close to home for Flannery O'Connor. Um, and, you know, Mr. Fortune wants to to be able to look out outside of his house and see the gas station on the other side. Like actually in his front yard. That that is so funny to me. Like the thought of him thinking how how convenient that you could just walk out your front door and get gas. Oh, that sounds great. Who would want a gas station right beside his house? I just that's funny. Now, I mentioned that cuz I I was reading this article, or I guess it's a blog post, but it's uh it's by well, it's just it just says if you want my opinion dot net, <laughs> and it was it was kind of giving the history of, um, the 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 forming of the the lake and and just the changes 
um, that happened with like Sinclair coming so close to, to Milledgeville. And so just the concept of like, like your land inherently changing value because not because of anything you did is very unusual. And so, um, that concept I think is, is fleshed out most fully here in this story, but it's almost like the entirety of Flannery O'Connor's writing is talking about a land that gets infused with value and meaning because it loses the civil war. Like before the civil war, I really don't think the South was this place that was such a, um, you know, such a fertile ground for creativity. It's like your fortune suddenly change, and then, mm-hmm. I mean, his his fortune suddenly it's like a windfall fortune that his land changed value. But the South had the opposite experience of the fortune suddenly changing for the worse. You know, in terms of prosperity and progress, it's like progress is a loaded word for a Southerner at that point um, because it was the South was considered to have lagged behind the rest of the country. For decades and decades. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so much, so much richness to this story that I didn't get the first time through because it was just kind of like, I think I was reading it too tightly on the shoulders of the grandfather, like, like you know, from, from that description that I read from the article. Um, and I didn't know how to make sense of the other characters. And she, he doesn't understand the other characters mm-hmm. well. I think especially Mary Fortune, reading through again, I thought he doesn't understand her well. Like, for example, I got the feeling on about the fourth page that Mary Fortune is suspicious of progress. I mean, she keeps saying, you know, that that digger scoop is going to eat into your land. And she runs down there. She's like shaking her fist at the guy driving it. Like, don't you eat into our land. You see that there's that stop showing where, you know, your land stops and our land starts. She all the way through to me seems suspicious of progress. And then she like hardens into being anti-progress. And I think the grandfather really thinks that she is on exactly the same page as him. He doesn't understand her. And that's, I think, you know, that's what the story sets up. There's this doubling <laughs> of the grandfather and Mary Fortune. It says, um, her pale eyes behind her spectacles followed the repeated motion of it again and again, and her face, a small replica of the old man's, never lost its look of complete absorption. And, and so th- this concept of, like, they look alike... And then it says the next the next paragraph starts. No one was particularly glad that Mary Fortune looked like her grandfather except the old man himself, including her, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end or toward the end of the paragraph, it says she was now nine, short and broad like himself, with his very light blue eyes, his wide prominent forehead, his steady penetrating scowl, and his rich florid complexion. But she was like him on the inside too. She had to a singular degree his intelligence, his strong will, and his push and drive. Now. That that was as I was rereading this story, that started this seed of an idea. So we're gonna get to that in a little bit, but there's something to them looking exactly alike. And so I think anything in a Flannery O'Connor story that you notice 
she probably put there in, intentionally, and she's, she's putting it there for you to ask the question, why is that in there? And so it's never just like, oh, it's in there just to be decoration. Like, she's so precise with her language, and even though it's one-cylinder English, she is as intentional as any of the great writers, you know, from from... Shakespeare on or from, you know, from Homer on or whatever, you know. Not a word out of place. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that, that concept I think is really interesting, um, that, that Mary Fortune is this spitting image. It says, who is a throwback to him. (laughs) Now it's interesting that it says that throwback. Yeah. In light of all the progress that he talks about all the time that, that he wants to maintain a tradition of having someone like him in the family. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. So I guess one of the main characters that we don't really get to know well is the father, Pitts. So I don't think it ever yeah. gives his first name. Um, but He's Mr. very inscrutable, right? Yes, like I was Mr. reading Pitts. this, and when I said the story's inscrutable, I said, I think Mr. Pitts and his beating of Mary Fortune and what that means was the most inscrutable part of it to me. Yeah. So let, let's kind of go with your, um, let, you know, okay, well, here's one more thing. It says, this is on page 57 of the, the you know, the edition that's just uh, everything that rises must converge. He was not one of those old people who fight improvement, who object to everything new and cringe at every change. And I think that that's really interesting. Like, Flannery O'Connor is, you know, f- approximately middle-aged writing this story, like, for, for a person that lives a long life. And yet she's actually, you know, toward the end of her age. This is published in 1958, I believe I said. And so, 1957, 1957, Enduring Chill is 1958. And so, um, it's actually published, you know, in rapid succession, she goes... Uh, a Good Man is Hard to Find, and those stories are all published as a collection in 1955, and then Greenleaf in 56, and then this in 57. And the more I read it, the more I could see, oh, this has got this same, like, what is the bull in Greenleaf? It's not, it's just not obvious. And and then, you know, what is what is going on with this dad, Pitts, and why is he beating Mary Fortune? And why is Mary Fortune insistent that he she's he's not beating her and if he did she said she'd kill him it's very challenging so so we'll we'll keep that question mark up um and one of the things that we find out is mary fortune was born uh, like like we said it says 10 years ago they announced they were going to name the new baby mark fortune pitts after him if it were a boy okay so just keep that in mind all right when the baby came a girl, and he had seen that even at the day of one, at the age of one day, she bore his unmistakable likeness, he had relented and suggested himself that they name her Mary Fortune after his beloved mother, who had died seventy years ago, bringing him into the world. So his mother dies in childbirth, bearing him. Mary Fortune is named after his mother, and so there's this concept of like it's a Flannery. It's not a Flannery. It's a family name. Right, similar to the fact that Flannery is a family name, and so this idea of lineage is very important in this story. And like, whose are you? Like, I think that's that's a big like. If you had to say like, what's one of the big questions raised in this story is 
whose are you? Are you a fortune or a pits? Yeah. And of course, like I said, the, the names, fortune and the pits, you know, the, those are about as, uh, you know, juxtaposed as they could possibly be. Like they're, they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And knowing as I do that Flannery O'Connor is pretty preoccupied with this idea of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, that, that idea is going to come up in Judgment Day. We saw that idea in um, really several other stories. So given that that is a preoccupation of hers, that juxtaposition seems to me to indicate um, the pits are, <laughs> while still being deeply flawed, um, somehow more poor in spirit than Mr. Fortune, who feels incredibly confident in his own capabilities and in worldly advancement and success. Yeah. Um, whereas there's something about the Pitts family that is seems to be synonymous with um, maybe humility, you know, or poverty of spirit, um, or at at least not being respected in the world's eyes, at the very least. And one of the things that we see about Pitts, the father, is Mr. Fortune's son-in-law. Nothing infuriated Pitts more than to see him sell off a piece of the property to an outsider because Pitts wanted to buy it himself. So we get that, and then it says Pitts was a long... (laughs) Pitts was a thin, long-jawed, irascible, sullen, sulking individual, and his wife was the duty-proud kind. It's my duty to stay here and take care of Papa. Who would do it if I didn't? I do it knowing full well I'll, I'll get no reward for it. I do it because it's my duty. So there's this uh, you know, very rich kind of Southern duty procedure to this this story of like, I do it because it's my duty, mm-hmm. not because I want to. Your sense of self comes from being a person who does your duty by your family. Yes. Um, I think the just to jump ahead slightly, but the, the daughter in Judgment Day has a similar sense of duty to her father. Yes. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean she has affection for her father. She just has a sense of duty toward him. Whereas we're told in A View of the Woods that... Um, I noticed the word duty pop up again in connection to Mr. Fortune because it says he realized it was his duty to sell the lot. He must ensure the future. Yeah. And so he, I think duty is in, in these, this story, another word for the thing they idolize or put their treasure in really. Um, you rationalize your, you know, it as your duty to mm. sell this property because it's really what you want to do. Or you, um, kind of maybe the daughter's rationalizing it as her duty to take care of her father, whereas really she's kind of living off her father and depending on her father for a living. Yeah. And so this concept of like, whose are you? Whose property is this? Whose right is it to sell it? Whose right is it to deny that it can be sold? Um, it's just running all throughout this story. And, and, and one of the passages, this is on page 58, uh, so this is two pages after it describes uh, Pitts. It says, this is talking about Mr. Fortune. It says his property amounted to 800 acres before he began selling lots. He sold five 20-acre lots on the back of the place, and every time he sold one, Pitts's blood pressure had gone up 20 points. Now, five times 20 is 100. Okay, so he's sold 100 of his acres already 
out of 800, but he still has a ton of land. I mean, that's a ton of land left, you know, that's going to be very valuable. And, and, you know, you're selling like maybe a quarter acre to, to make a, a gas station or may, may, maybe, maybe an acre if it's going to be this huge Tillman style, you know, <laughs> like I, I kept thinking about it being Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and it's obviously not, it's like much more of a, Gordon Highway style, you know. Cracker Barrel is a corporate chain version of this place, I would say. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Of like a like a catch all, like you could you could eat here, you could country buy store. a bunch of brand of stuff yeah, here. Yeah. There's of course, it seems like it turns into almost like the country nightclub. Yeah, at exactly. Night, though. So mm-hmm. it's it really does a lot. You can even buy a tombstone there. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, so. <laughs> So it's just interesting to think about like how many of these stories have the concept of a stroke and like blood pressure going up. And so anyway, I thought I'd mention that. Um, and so I, you know, there are just all these things about pits that we see and yet we really don't get to interact with him much as a character. We just find out about him through the lens of Mr. Fortune. And so, it says, it's talking about Mr. Fortune. It says, he was a strict disciplinarian, but he, he had never whipped her. There were some children, like the first six Pitzes, whom he thought should be whipped once a week on principle. <laughs> but there were other ways to control intelligent children, and he had never laid a rough hand on Mary Fortune. It's, that's so ironic when you read the end, and then it continues to be ironic. It says things like, it made him physically sick. He beats an innocent child. Not one of you lifts a hand to stop him. It just mm-hmm. so much like that. Um, if if I gave him a stroke and paralyzed him, he would be served right and never be able to beat her again. And, you know, ironically, mm-hmm. he's not going to be able to stop himself from beating her. Not in this, like, sort of methodical, strangely, like, ritualistic way that, that Pitts does, but in this savage way that ends up, killing her yeah he thinks that he's above that Flannery O'Connor sets up people in her stories to think they're above doing something and then do it yeah and the ending of the story he smashes her against a rock and she dies and so we'll talk about (laughs) talk about that in a second um but one of the things, as we've said, the big one of the big mysteries, in addition to whose are you, is why is this abuse happening? And why on earth does Mary Fortune keep saying, nobody is here and nobody beat me. Nobody's ever beat me in my life, and if anybody did, I'd kill him. Do you have a theory about this you'd like of course, to share, but, Adam? But, <laughs> I'd well, like I, to hear it, though. Well, I, I'm going to get to it in a second, but, but I actually want to start with your theory, but before we get to that, I wanted to just point out, I do think it's actual abuse in the story. I don't think that uh, Mr. Fortune imagines it happening or hallucinates it happening. I think it's real. And so I want to make sure, like, I do cover child abuse is wrong. Don't do it. There are repercussions if you do it, and some of the repercussions are, are incredibly stringent and rightfully so because there's there's just no excuse to abusing a child now the way he abuses her is kind of grotesque he slaps her on the ankles with a belt 
I've never heard of someone using their belt to like smack someone's ankles. Yeah. It's uh, very it odd. odd. And she's like sort of hugging a tree. Mm-hmm. Actually, the details of the beating made me start thinking in terms of allegory. Yeah. And then a few other little things made me start thinking in terms of allegory more. I can point out what a few of them are. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I said, like, let's go into your allegory. And your allegory actually, it actually ties into mine. So it's like, it's not like we have competing reading to this story. It's just that, like, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Okay, go. <laughs> well, I, mine is not fully formed because I'm a, a little suspicious of my own way of interpreting it right now. But I'll, I'll tell you a few things I noticed. Um, so I was reading along. And one phrase that caught my eye was when Mary Fortune says um, about the woods, we won't be able to see them. And that's the lawn. And my daddy grazes his calves on it. Something about my daddy grazes his calves on it made me think about, I wrote the phrase God's earth, question mark. Um, The father, sheep, you know, tend my sheep. That's very biblical language. Um, so that just caught my eye, but then I thought, I put a question mark. I, I don't know if that's what's happening there. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. And it's almost like, whose lawn is that? Because if the calves are, are grazing there, the the son-in-law, Mr. Mm-hmm. Pitts, is treating it as if it's his his land, and then Mr. Fortune wants to sell it so it won't be... Yeah. Like, does that make sense? It's like not it's, really his land. It's not really yeah. his land because Mr. Pitts is the one that's benefiting from it, and, mm-hmm. and the Pitts family is the one are the ones that treasure it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that caught my eye. Um and then on the next page I read this and it, it really struck me. The third time he got up to look at the woods, it was almost six o'clock, and the gaunt trunks appeared to be raised in a pool of red light that gushed from the almost hidden setting sun behind him. Okay. Three times he goes to look at the woods. The third time, the trunks appear to be raised in a pool of red light um, that gushed like a liquid um, from the almost hidden setting sun. The sun typically represents God um, or, you know, God's presence, God's spirit in O'Connor's stories. So I thought, oh, it's like the woods are being resurrected mm-hmm. on the third day, right? Yeah. So I thought, that's interesting. Um keep that in mind and then later on in that same paragraph um it says after a few minutes this unpleasant vision was broken by the presence of pitts's pickup truck grinding to a halt below the window he returned to his bed and shut his eyes and against the closed lids hellish red trunks rose up in a black wood now i think that the narrator was describing those trunks as being resurrected like christ Mm -hmm. and i think that so Mr. Fortune thinks of it as hellish red trunks rising up. He he sees something that the narrator is seeing as being, you know, rather like beautiful and, and um, powerful in a good way as being frightening and hellish. And he calls it a hallucination instead of, he wants to call it a hallucination rather than a vision. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe Mr. Fortune is denying God, I mean, he clearly is, I think, through the things he idolizes in the story, but he's kind of denying God and denying the the true goodness of um, these woods, and he'd rather have them torn down and destroyed. 
um, to make room for more worldliness. So that struck me. Mm-hmm. And then I kept reading, and I got to the part where Mary Fortune is going with her grandfather to look at boats. Um, he's kind of bribing her, saying he's going to buy a boat to get her to go out with him. And it says that um, she's kind of talking to herself, looking at her feet. Yeah. It says the old man had often sneaked up on her and found her alone in conversation with her feet. Mm-hmm. And he thought that she was speaking with him silently now. Every now and then her lips moved, but she said nothing to him and let all his remarks pass as if she had not heard him. I think she's praying. And yeah, he thinks good. she's just talking to herself. Mm-hmm. Then on that page, I realized that he tempts her three times with three things, mm-hmm. three worldly things to distract her from her focus on the lawn and the woods, like gazing at the lawn and the woods. And he tempts her with a boat and some ice cream mm-hmm. and a quarter for the 10 cent store. And she says no to all of them. Um, and it's so funny the whole time the, the things he's tempting her with are funny and not like sort of elegant and spiritual. And then he says things like, well, what's the matter, sister? Don't you feel good? <laughs> he's yeah. so like jaunty. She's, she's serious. Um, and she says with slow, concentrated ferocity, it's the lawn. My daddy grazes his calves there. We won't be able to see the woods anymore. She's really valuing and taking seriously this place where the narrator has just said it's like a vision of resurrection and he has said it's hellish. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, she's about her father's business Mm -hmm. at the top of the page. So that led me to thinking about whether Mary Fortune could be a Christ figure. And I'm always really hesitant to say someone's a Christ figure because I think that's overused. Like people will say Phineas and separate pieces of Christ figure. And I'm like, because he dies like, because he kind of lives again in Jean. I don't know. But I kept seeing little things, and I'll just mention a couple of quick ones, and then we'll go to you. Um, He says, are you a fortune or a pits? And she says, I'm Mary Fortune Pitts. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how Christ has this duality where he's God and man. Um, He's And he's low and high, right? Like he's simultaneously um, powerless and killed by the world, and also he's going to return and be every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be incredibly powerful. So I think you see, start to see some of that duality in her. And then you start to see at the bottom of that page that the sky is darkening and you start to see these things like what happened when Jesus was crucified as you're leading up to Mary Fortune being killed. And it says he might have been chauffeuring a small dead body for all the answer he got. Like, you have a pretty clear foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Then, on the next page, I thought that Mr. Fortune was sort of like Judas. The description of him selling the land to Mr. Tillman. It says things like, um, what was done, he felt was done, and there could be no more argument with her or with himself. He felt that he had acted on principle and that the future was assured. I just imagined Judas saying that to himself, like, mm-hmm. I'm doing what's right. I'm not going to argue with myself anymore about it. I might be betraying this person that I love, but I'm doing it for, for progress. I'm doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. I'm justified. Um, and it says, just as their hands loosened, an instant's change came over Tillman's face. He disappeared completely under the counter as if he had been snatched by the feet from below, a bottle crashing against the line of tin goods from behind where he had, behind where he had been. Mm. I like this part where 
Mary Fortune appears and she's just like throwing bottles at him and destroying stuff. And I thought it was like kind of like Christ turning the tables. Mm-hmm. You know, not long before he's crucified, he turns the tables in the temple um, out of anger at the commercialism and, you know, worldliness. And so I started thinking, man, there really are a lot of parallels between Mary Fortune Pitts, who seems like the last person to be a Christ figure, and Christ. Well, and I, I think you're a lot of your points are, are valid and interesting and, and like, like for example, doesn't Judas buy uh, the potter's field with mm-hmm. the money? Yeah. So there's this idea of like using the money for a field. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this, there's, there's so much more biblical parallel to this story than you would first assume because it doesn't have like any priests or pastors in it, you know? And it barely even mentions the closest thing to mentioning religion is one of the funniest things in the whole story to me. Um, which is when (laughs) he tells Mary Fortune, welcome by yourself. I refuse to ride a Jezebel. And she says, and I refuse to ride with the whore of Babylon. (laughs) And and they also quote scripture at each other. There's the, the point where, um, she says, you know, anyone that calls his brother a fool is in danger of hell. And then he says, judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. Um, Which reminds me of Satan quoting scripture to Jesus and then him quoting scripture right back. Like tempting and resisting That's temptation. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, I don't know, there's there's all of this going on in this story. And, and here's, here's something from... From the mouth of, of Flannery O'Connor herself. She's talking about a view of the woods. And she says, the first point is, well, this is a letter to A, who is one of the people that she wrote a lot of letters back and forth with. I can't remember uh, her real Mary name. Mary Hester, I think. Mary Hester, like you're that. right, you're yeah. right. Um, it says, um, it, it ain't over until it is finished, and I'm always longing and finishing anything. Long and finishing anything. The first point is whether Pitts is or can be a Christ symbol. I had that role cut out for the woods. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the woods resurrect in the story, like I just said. And that if you sell the the land, the, I keep wanting to call it the land. If you keep if you sell the lawn, you can't see the woods. Yeah. And that the woods is what they value the most. Like, the view of the woods is the most valuable thing in this story. And it makes sense that, I mean, I do think that Mary Fortune is uh, tied to Christ through the language. And I certainly think that uh, Mr. Fortune is tied to Judas through the language and through just like kind of a satanic yeah. force, you know, in the, through the language. I don't think it makes sense to say like one to one. Mary fortune is Christ. She's a person. She's a sinner, but there's something about the fact that her father, she kind of submits and even cooperates with her father beating her. Well, Jesus had to submit and cooperate to God forsaking him and like leading him into a violent death in order to accomplish redemption. So there is something to that when it's about a real child and a real story, it's like really disturbing and and messed up. But then you kind of realize, man, it also is disturbing. Like occasionally I will just remember how much Christ had to hurt for us, how much God's heart must have hurt. Um, Emotionally and physically, there was hurt. Um, 
that's horrific too. You know, so thinking of a suffering child, I don't know. And that, I like that Flannery O'Connor's not afraid to wrestle with this idea that God has a side that is retributive and that is wrathful Mm -hmm. and that all came down on Jesus instead of us. But that side of him is there because sin is so disgusting and, and ugly and destructive and can't stand and God will punish it. Yeah. So, um, so the question is, what is up with this? I mean, I think just like I said, whose are you is a central question to this. The question of what is up with this abuse? Why on earth does it happen? And why might it be significant? Well, let me just read one part. Okay, so this is um, early on in the story when it says that um, that Mr. Fortune has realized she's being abused, right? Um, it says, hmm, okay. Um, it says, Mr. Fortune... Well, sorry. Okay, let me back it up a little bit. He was a man of a nasty temper and of ugly, unreasonable resentments. This is talking about Mr. Pitts, so Mary Mary Fortune's father. Time and again, Mr. Fortune's heart had pounded to see him rise slowly from his place at the table. Not the head. Mr. Fortune sat there. But from his place at the side, and abruptly for no reason with no explanation, jerk his head at Mary Fortune and say, Come with me, and leave the room, unfastening his belt as he went a look that was completely foreign to the child's face would appear on it. So, so this idea of, like, she stops looking like the grandfather in this moment. The old man could not define the look, but it infuriated him. It was a look that was part terror and part respect and part something else, something very like cooperation. This look would appear on her face, and she would get up and follow Pitts out. They would get in his truck and drive down the road out of earshot where he would beat her. Mr. And like I, let me just reiterate, child abuse is wrong. Don't do it. There are and should be consequences for you doing it, including losing your child, like losing the ability to, to interact with your child. And so here we get this. It says Mr. Fortune knew for a fact because, that he beat her because he had followed them in his car and had seen it happen. Okay, so now... Buckle up. Here we go. He had watched from behind a boulder about a hundred feet away while the child clung to a pine tree and Pitts, as methodically as if he were whacking a bush with a sling blade, beat her around the ankles with his belt. All she had done was jump up and down as if she were standing on a hot stove and make a whimpering noise like a dog that was being peppered. Pitts had kept at it for about three minutes and then he had turned without a word and got back in his truck and left her there and she had slid down under the tree and taken both feet in her hands and rocked back and forth. The old man had crept forward to catch her. Her face was contorted into a puzzle of small red lumps, and her nose and eyes were running. He sprang on her and sputtered, Why didn't you hit, why didn't you hit him back? Where's your spirit? Do you, do you think I'd let, a, let him beat me? She jumped up and started backing away from him with her jaw stuck out. Nobody beat me, she said. Didn't I see it with my own eyes, he exploded. Nobody is here and nobody beat me, she said. Nobody has ever beat me in my life, and if anybody did, I'd kill him. 
You can see for yourself nobody is here. Don't you call me a liar or a blind man, he shouted. I saw him with my own two eyes, and you never did a thing but let him do it. And you never did a thing but hang on to that tree and dance up and down a little and blubber. And if it had been me, I'd have swung my fist in his face and... And then we get the repeat of, nobody was here, nobody beat me, and if anybody did, I'd kill him. She yelled and then turned and dashed off to the woods. Now, let me just read a little bit of this again. It says... The old man had crept forward to catch her. Her face was contorted into a puzzle of small red lumps and her nose and eyes were running. What's one of the main symptoms of lupus? It changes the, the, the look of your face. You can get this what's called moon face look. Look at where the father is hitting her on the ankles, which is what Flannery was affected in. I think... Mr. Pitts is God, and Mary Fortune is Flannery. And when he takes her to punish her, or to, to you know, in our in our language we call it we call it beating her, he's disciplining her, and that he's disciplining her with lupus. Well, that makes sense that it would be like a Christ figure because the ultimate example of God exerting all of his discipline, all of his is is. Christ. Christ absorbed so much. So if you're suffering like Flannery O'Connor suffered, the only comfort you can get as a Christian is to say, well, Christ had to suffer yeah. too. Like, and he deserved it. None. And I deserve it. Yeah. You know, for my sin. Like for me, it truly is discipline. So, yeah, yeah, that's very when interesting, you look at, Adam. You never did a thing but hang on to that tree and dance up and down a little and blubber. She's hanging on to the tree. She's yeah. hanging on to the cross. Yeah. She's... She's relying on the cross. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, yeah, but I just hadn't yeah. kind of like thought through. That's that's really that's really. And then it says, and then she turned and dashed off to the woods. So she she even when she's questioned about it, rather than keep arguing with him, she just goes to Christ. Like if the woods yeah, are representing yeah. the risen Christ, she is going to the glory of Christ. And so yeah, so I think Mary Fortune is Flannery O'Connor. Okay, not literally. It's not a nine-year-old Flannery O'Connor. I think that this is an allegory, which Flannery O'Connor wrote to... ah, Now i got to find it. She called it a little morality play. She called this this story a little morality play. And I think that... ah, Now i got to find it. But she, she basically was saying, yeah, you know... I just, I wrote this little, like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress kind of thing, right? This, this little, yeah, okay, she's writing it to Sally and Robert Fitzgerald, 10th of December, 1956. It says, I enclose a little morality play, a few of the woods of mine, for your Christmas cheer, but as it is not very cheerful, I'd advise you to leave off reading it until after the season. (laughs) And so... I thought about this and this idea of like, well, if Mary Fortune is Flannery O'Connor, then who is Mr. Fortune? Well, think about this, though. Yeah. If, if that is the case, and I almost wonder if it could be somewhat subconscious, like rather than completely conscious. Right, right. Um, and we should talk about the fact that she's a child, if that, like that she's depicting... She's nine as years a child old. rather than yeah. as like a 
an adult woman, but um, Mr. Fortune is tempting her to fight back and like buck that that discipline and be angry. It's yeah. almost it reminds me of Job's friend saying like curse God and die. Yeah. What he yeah. wants her to do um, to her father. Yeah. Um, and and I know that I'm sure there were voices because anyone who suffers like like Flannery O'Connor suffered, it's going to have some voices in her life saying, like, why do you hold on to your faith if God's done this to you? Exactly, yeah. You know, they're just, just tempting her, luring her away. Like, it says, um, it's, like, in Mr. Fortune's head, and it says, what was the matter with her that she couldn't stand up to pits? It was an ugly mystery. Yes. The word mystery is always important for yes. Flannery O'Connor. And so this idea that, like, what if her her illness, her suffering was she had to consider it an ugly mystery, right? You know, right. to some degree. Like it's not like you can because she has times. Like I read one thing she wrote in a letter, um, and this was before she got really really sick. It was like in the fifties where she wrote about how beneficial it was to be um, ill. You yeah. know, that it teaches you something that nothing else can teach you. But then later, when she was getting closer to her death, she wrote a letter and and wrote, "I'm sick of being sick." Yeah. So there's no one who's heroic enough to just sort of be like, let me embrace this illness. I'm sure it's God's discipline for me. Yeah. I'm sure it's good for me all the time, right? Yeah. It, but this that's why this maybe that's why this little girl is crying and blubbering. I mean, she's yeah. not stoic just because right. she's submitting to it. Well, and and just the, I think that's just it is like it, it's got this It's like she she transforms when she's disciplined. So she transforms and her face changes when she's disciplined by Mr. Pitts, her father. And then when Mr. Fortune tries to discipline her, it says on 78 in my edition, this is only about, you know, three pages, four pages from the end, where a few seconds before her face had been red and distorted and unorganized, it drained now of every vague line until nothing was left on it but positiveness, a look that went slowly past determination and reached certainty. Mm. Nobody has ever beat me, she said. If anybody tries it, I'll kill him. Does that sound like the things that Flannery O'Connor said about herself as a little girl? That she would give these these like icy stares to yeah. people and she was yeah. like an intimidating little girl, like so sure of herself. Um do you, does it make you think that like God has come along and like humbled her massively, but she still has that voice in herself that Mr. Fortune kind of like represents that's like wants to buck up against it and be like, You can't humble me, you know, you can't you can't tell me what to do. That she her natural character is to be tough and icy and like yeah. cold yeah. and and no one can humble me, no one can mess with yeah. me. But her illness has broke started breaking her of that, but she's not going to like submit to almost like he's tempting her to be that way again. And like bringing that part of herself out that's proud and stubborn. Yeah. Well, I I think he's bringing out a fierce confidence in her and it's a denial that the, the beating is, 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 you know, abuse, and it, it's saying nothing happened. And I think what it is is when she is being disciplined by her father, if her father is God in this metaphor, she realizes it's for her good, 
And that's why I read that that passage where it says, "Now it drained, it now drained of every vague line until nothing left was left on it but positiveness, a look that went slowly past determination and reached certainty." And I think that she, in this mm-hmm. uh, last uh, discipline that she gets from Mister Fortune rather than from her father, she's like, "I'm certain where I, you know, what matters to me," and that sense of like Flannery O'Connor, just like in Greenleaf, as we discussed last time. I think she's committing wholeheartedly to being a Christian writer, not in a way that writes about the grotesqueness of Southern faith, but that writes about genuine faith and how essential it is for life for all people, and not just that it's some sort of, um, you know, it's like Christ's Haunted South metaphor that, that um, Ralph Wood uses. It's not a Southern thing. It's a, it's a worldwide thing that every person has to reckon with God, either on earth or in death. And and um, just thinking about, like, her face changes from, like, a lupus face to something that says positive and is determined and certain. Mm-hmm. It's like he, Mr. Fortune is seeing her kingdom of heaven yeah, body. Yeah, we are more than conquerors. Yes. Yeah. You triumph over the grave, and there's all this language about how strong mm-hmm. um, Christ will be on his return, and all his people will be in the new kingdom. Yeah. Um, and that even when she's killed, he slams her against a rock. And so I was thinking, okay, well, the rock of ages. Like, he's killing her by, by making her one with Christ. And it says, looking into the face in which the eyes slowly rolling back appeared to pay him not the slightest attention. Mm-hmm. He said, there's not an ounce of pits in me. Um, the last thing she says is, you've been whipped by me and I'm pure pits. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of, you know, the um, passage in Philippians where it says that Jesus being in very nature, God didn't consider equality with God as something he needed to grasp at. Yeah. But he made himself nothing. He took on the nature yeah. of a servant. He was able to come to earth in all that vulnerability and poverty because he didn't have anything to prove. Yeah. He didn't have to give in the temptations of Satan to be powerful on earth because he didn't have anything to prove. He could yeah. like let himself be crucified because he didn't have anything to prove. And ultimately, um, that servanthood, that that kind of lame shall enter first, the last shall be first, Like the, the servants are going to triumph, the seemingly weak are going to be the victors. And you see that kind of turnaround in the story. Yeah. So the way that this ends with her dying at her grandfather's hands, I don't think that he means to kill her. Yeah. Very similar to like, I don't know, (laughs) Frankenstein's monster and William. My daddy is a syndic. He's like, I must stop the screaming kind of of thing. Not like... I'm actually going to kill you, little girl. But it it raises the question, why does she say, if anybody did it, I'll kill him? She says, you've been whipped by me, and I'm pure pits, but she doesn't kill him, which is interesting that she keeps reiterating she'll kill him. She'll kill kill the first person that does this to to her. And then when her grandfather does it, she doesn't kill him, but she whips him. And so it's like, I beat you. And so there's this element of she beats her grandfather, you know, she defeats him. And that, like, her her victory is not in destroying him, 
but by bettering him or besting him. I mean, it's possible he represents death in a, in a way. It's like, you know, yeah. that Jesus submits to death, but then he ultimately triumphs over death. He submits to death in order to triumph over death. It's yeah. like it all goes together. Well, let, let's take a little bit of a detour onto Tillman. Okay, so Tillman is the owner of this hilarious all-in-one. You can buy a tombstone, you can dance the night away, and, you and know. And you can get a barbecue sandwich. And you can get a barbecue sandwich and gas and just, like, it, it's, it's, it's just kind of, to me, it's just hilarious. Like, like, I know that places like that did exist, but it's just, it's like she picks the most hilarious possible thing to be the incidental thing for this story, which this idea of, like, Mr. Fortune's going to sell sell out to Tillman. Well, and he's an entrepreneurial Southerner. So yes. it's like, this is does not have the polished feel of a big city enterprise True. at all. True. It feels like it's very organically rural Southern. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing a rural Southerner would think to put off a major road that suddenly got built. Like, let me take advantage of progress in a way that I think the people who live here will want. Right. They'll want... A place to dance and yeah. maybe you know drink beer and eat barbecue sandwiches yeah. and get some gas and oh you know what there's a market for tombstones that hasn't really yeah. been met here and like it's really kind of ramshackle and thrown together yeah like it says that almost the whole um, business is outdoors to save on money right um, right you know it's very like like this is a prosperous but kind of a tacky place at at the same time but this. This is something that Mr. Fortune really admires. Mr. Fortune doesn't have the sophisticated sense of what a fancy place is. Right. And now Tillman's has all these signs, like five miles till Tillman's. Here it is, friends. (laughs) Tillman's. And and so as you're getting closer, you're getting closer, you're getting closer, you're getting, you know, you're, you're coming up on Tillman's territory. Now, it says... It says, here it is, uh, it says, he was so occupied with these thoughts that he didn't notice the signs that said how many miles to Tillman's until the last one exploded joyfully in his face. Here it is, friends, Tillman's. He pulled in under the shed. He got out without so much as looking at Mary Fortune and entered the dark store where Tillman, leaning on the counter in front of a triple shelf of canned goods, was waiting for him. Tillman was a man of quick action and few words. He sat habitually with his arms folded on the counter and his insignificant head weaving snake fashion above them. Now, snake fashion already makes you think serpent. Yeah. He had a triangular-shaped face. A triangular-shaped head for a snake is a poisonous snake. Ugh, scary. And with a point point on the bottom, and the top of his skull was covered with a cap of freckles. His eyes were green and very narrow, and his tongue was always exposed in his partly opened mouth. So he is pure serpentine, right? Yeah. And and Whitney mentioned it earlier. Just as their hands loosened, an instant's change came over Tillman's face, and he disappeared completely under the counter as if he'd been snatched by the feet... uh, by the feet from below. So he gets pull, pulled under, and, and it's it's kind of, um, I think of it like the moment in The Godfather when Sonny is like trying to go through the toll booth, and the <laughs> guy, the toll booth collector drops down. <laughs> it's like, there's this like 
humorous moment before something. Yeah, you and know. you don't know why it's happening. It, yeah. it just happens. It's very cinematic in that way. I thought this whole story was kind of visual. I could yes. picture it really well. Yeah. But that moment, it preserves this mystery for just a second of like, what? What's he doing? And then yeah. all of a sudden, you, you figure out that Mary Fortune is hurling bottles. It makes me think of Satan's head being crushed, you know, like the yeah. serpent's yeah. head being crushed by by the Son of Man, by Jesus. Now, I mentioned Tillman being Satan-esque because I don't think that Mr. Fortune is Satan. Yeah. I do think that 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 Christ is in the story, and like like I said, Flannery in her one of her letters says, like, I want the woods to be Christ, which makes sense that the, the beating happens out by the woods, and if Mary Fortune is... You know, a stand-in. By the way, Mary Flannery O'Connor, Mary Fortune Pitts. Like, I think the Mary F is intentional because there are no other Mary characters in all of her stories that have a Mary F. It's yeah. always Mary Green. I mean, Mary George or Mary. Um, you know, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. But um, there are several other Marys in in the stories, but none that are Mary F except for this one. So, Mister Fortune seems like an agent of evil several times in the story mm-hmm. without being sort of straightforwardly like serpent in the way that Tillman is. Yeah. Well, one of the things that Whitney mentioned earlier today uh, as she was rereading this story was how visual it was. And I mean, it's called a view of the woods, but it's amazing how much, how, how many visuals are in this. It's as if, and Flannery was a, an amateur painter. So she is thinking of this, like she's painting a portrait. And I bring that word up <laughs> because now we're going to talk about who Mr. Fortune is. I think that the metaphor of this story is Mary Fortune is Flannery O'Connor and Mr. Fortune is William Faulkner. And that Mary Fortune is the inheritor to William Faulkner's kingship of the South. You know, he is the writer of the South. And that Flannery is going to be the next... Faulkner or the next, you know, she's going to, she's going to be as great a, a Southern writer as Faulkner. And she rejects his goals. Yes. Well, I will say, I mean, I'd have to think about this more, but the beginning and ending image where that earth moving machine is described is so Faulknerian to me. It, it's like this lavishly over the top Faulknerian is really good. Yeah. I mean, I like because I like Faulkner's style, yeah. but Faulkner will just pilot these metaphors and they'll be kind of like gross and weird and surprising. Like the last sentence of this story says, He looked around desperately for someone to help him, but the place was deserted except for one huge yellow monster which sat to the side, as stationary as he was, gorging itself on clay. That really reminds me of Faulkner if Faulkner had a one cylinder syntax. If Faulkner right. was writing to right. be understood. Now, it's interesting that you say that because as I started rereading this and, and had this epiphany, now, I, to the best of my knowledge, no one that I've ever seen an article about this story ha- has made this connection. I think Mr. Fortune is Faulkner. He is looking at Flannery. Now, I, I'm not saying literally William Faulkner thought this of Flannery Connor personally. I'm saying that the legacy of Faulkner was he was the great Southern writer and that he was a progressive. The big thing about Faulkner was he wasn't this romanticized South. Let me tell the story of 
the the beauty of the antebellum. No. It, he tells the the, the the severe, the harsh. He's about cruel things. He's about you know characters that that are just kind of go, you know going off in all directions instead of coming together. And so I started thinking, you know, as I was re, re, rereading this, are there any echoes of Faulkner's stories in this story? And sure enough, like I said, the grandfather has already sold off 100 acres. Well, 100 acres, 100 square miles, I'm not quite the same on real estate terms. Sutton's 100. But Sutton's 100, yeah, right? And you have this concept of... Um, just just the like the generation that this kind of like having to have this unhealthy connection through generations is ve- to me is very Faulknerian like i've got like rosa colfield with Col- with uh quentin she's got to just like pull him in all the way into her her life her vortex of the past and you know at the end when it says that mr fortune is um stationary and the machine of progress is as stationary as he was gorging itself on clay like there does seem to be a little something there it's like Faulkner is stuck because Mm -hmm. he's obsessed with the past um he wasn't a progressive in the sense of like he was fighting for integration. Yeah, he wasn't like or, a political or, progressive, but he his style his style was cutting is, edge, right? And exactly, avant-garde. exactly. And but but his subject matter was kind of about how the South is like stuck in some sort of futility because yeah. of its like obsession with the past. It's pretty bleak a lot yeah. of the time, um, <laughs> gorging itself on that Georgia red clay. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in this. I'm not. I'm just not sure. Well, let me let let me build the case. Okay. It says, "What Pitts made went to Pitts, but the land belonged to Fortune, and he was careful to keep the fact before them. The South belongs to Faulkner, like Flannery O'Connor's writing when Faulkner's still alive, and so to have the gall to say I'm going to write the South and I'm going to do it better than Faulkner, well, no one was trying to do that because." Everyone was like, William Faulkner, like Whitney said, the metaphor of, like, he's this freight train, and you just have to, like, stand close to the to the platform and hope it picks you up. Like, she recognizes the power of Faulkner, and I think that's why Mary, Mary Fortune shows up in his bedroom every day for nine years. She wants to be close to her grandfather the way that I think... Not, I'm not literally saying Flannery, like, read Faulkner every day for nine years. What my point is, is for nine years... From 1947, when she got her MFA, she first got published with the Geranium, to 1956, which is when she's writing this story, I think Flannery was trying to be a, a literary superstar. Like, she wanted to be a famous writer. And in this story, in Greenleaf, like we talked about last time, I think she is choosing the woods, She's choosing to not have the gas station on her property and to and to you know to be the inheritor of what Mr. Fortune has, which would be Faulkner's literary um, uh, reputation. She's choosing to 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 take the abuse in the woods alone uh, with the lupus in in Millersville, Georgia, and she's not she's not embracing 
what Mr. Fortune has to offer anymore. She's, she's actually trying to deny him the sale of the lawn, which is interesting because one of the big plot points in a sound, The Sound of the Fury is they sell part of their land. Uh, that pasture. They sell the pasture. Benji's pasture. So they sell Benji's pasture to pay for Quentin to go to Harvard. Yeah. And so there's this element of like, there are these little plot points. Miss, uh, Mark Fortune Pitts after him, if it were a boy. That's straight out of Absalom, Absalom. Like, oh, if it's a boy, I'll marry you. And if it's not, you know. And and honestly, it's like if 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 Rosa Colefield uh, had had a had a boy and married Sutpin, maybe we wouldn't have had Absalom Absalom the novel, right? I mean, it's like that that simple of a change could have changed that entire story because it would have given Sutpin a re, a, um, a new chance, a new lease on his his vision uh, to go back to season one. Um, but but to me, that concept of who is fortune and then it toward the end of the story this is where i really <laughs> this is where it really hit me it says well now i gotta find it um it's talking about tillman it says tillman was a likable fellow tillman would draw other business the road would soon be paved travelers from all over the country would stop at tillman's if his daughter thought she was better than tillman it would be well to take her down a little all men were created free and equal. You know who said that? Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson, Mississippi, William Faulkner. <laughs> and I say that because, yet again, now i got to find this one. It says, this is on 77. His heart felt as if it were the size of the car and was racing forward, carrying him into some inevitable destination faster than he had ever been carried before. For the first five minutes, he did not think, but only sped forward as if he were being driven inside, sorry, as if he were being driven inside his own fury. There are these little nods to, to, to Faulkner throughout the story and they're and they're just they're just enough to make me think it's possible, but to me it's so it's so subtle that I don't think anyone could read this without the like weird imagination of me <laughs> or someone like me that would just be like oh I this I know why this story is so inscrutable it's it's a renouncing of literary fame in favor of faith in Christ and you know. As a Southern writer at that time, it seems to have been the case that it felt like you had a, a lot of hurdles to jump in order to be respected in the wider literary world. And certainly mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor did that with a certain amount of ease. So if she was yeah. really self-conscious about it, you almost wonder why, because she started being published when she was pretty young and some, right. you know, pretty respectable. Right. She got her novel picked up. I mean, but a lot of people did misinterpret her and... Um, we're kind of comparing her to people like Erskine Caldwell, who she didn't respect at all. And um, I think she she seems to have really felt that it was difficult to be respected as a Southern writer. Right. And that Faulkner was the pioneer in terms of earning that respect in the wider world, yeah. that kind of unimpeachable respect. Yeah. Um, and you did feel as if you had to be kind of his inheritor in order to 
gain the same respect. You want to yeah. be compared to him and not compared to someone lesser. Like she apparently really hated Carson McCullers work and didn't, and was sometimes compared to Carson McCullers. And she's like, what? Because we're both Southern, you know, why? And mm-hmm. Southern plus woman equals the yeah. same. Like, and, no, <laughs> but you can kind of see from other things. She says that she might feel, you know, sort of like a, like a nine year old girl, you know, in comparison to this, like sort of, um, elderly, Eminence yeah. that is Faulkner, and I also was thinking about that that story that you hear all the time when you start looking into Flannery O'Connor, where she went off to Iowa to graduate school and um, had to write down what she wanted mm-hmm. to say because um, her professor couldn't understand what she was saying with her Southern accent. And I think even I, when I went to graduate school in Virginia, which is the South, by the way, but um, most of the people I was in school with were not Southern, and um, I had someone say to me. The, I think it was the first time I'd ever met him, but we had been talking for a while or had class together and we're talking after or something. And he said, you know, when you first started talking, I thought you were going to be stupid because of your Southern accent, but it turns out you're not. Mm-hmm. And I thought, A, I can't believe that it seems okay to say that, <laughs> you know, but I think in, there's still kind of a like a comfortable complacency about being prejudiced against the South even today, much less in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but also it's kind of a, a strange assumption from someone who's in the same graduate program as you are. Um, but I'll let to say, I think even today there's some of this comfortable, complacent um, dismissiveness about Southern women, Southerners in general. Yeah. Um, interesting at the end of the story that it says that Mr. Fortune's trying to escape and leave the woods behind him. Um, but he suddenly realized that he could not swim and that he had not bought the boat. It reminded me of that idea of having no insurance. Yeah. Uh, you mm-hmm. know? Yes. Um, yes. Exactly. That we were talking about in the last mm-hmm. episode that, like, you get to the end of your life and you realize you're just not prepared for what's going to come. And I'm not saying that, like, William Satan, William Satan, not saying that William Satan was a Faulknerist. Um, I'm not saying that William Faulkner was, was like selling his soul to the devil. But what I think happened was William Faulkner became a God of his own life. And, and to this day, there are people that, that revere William Faulkner as if he's Jesus. And like William Faulkner's dead, man, Jesus is raised from the dead in heaven right now. I want to put my eternity on something that is foolproof and bulletproof, not something that I know is a failure. And I can appreciate Faulkner for what he is, which we have a whole season, season one, about Absalom Absalom. I think William Faulkner is a tremendous writer, and he is so thought-provoking, and his talent was off the charts. I mean, his talent, his work ethic are dream, like we could only hope that every person would put as much of themselves into their work as he did into his writing. But he writes about the South and he neglects the faith of the South. And so he misses out on just as, as the rest of the, the Pitts family treat the lawn as if it's the most important part of the whole property. And he's like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm selling it off. And I think the lawn could be analogous to like, the faith of, of Southerners, that, that Faulkner's just ready to trade it to Tillman's 
for like he would rather not be leagued with the you know these backwoods prophet type people in favor of being leagued with like the clerk at the boat shop and and I I bring that up because I really don't think uh, Mr. Fortune and Tillman are, are are I think they're business partners but I think he's submitting to Tillman like he's letting Tillman. Yeah. Almost like he's selling his soul to Tillman. But with the clerk at the boat uh, boathouse, it says, Show us the yachts for Poe folks, he shouted jovially to the clerk as they entered. They're all for Poe folks, the clerk said. You'll be Poe when you finish buying it. And there's this element of like, they, they get each other. Like the, 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 their their repartee is is instant, you know. Poor, poor Asbury can't get repartee to save his life with Randall and Morgan in the enduring chill. But here's Mister Fortune just walking right in, and the first thing that happens is like he finds someone like birds of a feather. And I actually thought that the clerk was James Joyce, and that Mister Fortune in in kind of connecting to the clerk like that and being like silly and forsaking his granddaughter. I think it's like William Faulkner saying, I'd rather be like James Joyce than Flannery O'Connor. And it, I, it, like I said, he's never, William Faulkner didn't say that kind of thing explicitly, but in his actions, he really pursued a fame that was antagonistic to Christ as opposed to, um, you know, what d- w- w- was deferential to Christ, whereas Flannery O'Connor, I feel like, really chose the latter. And this story, just like Greenleaf, I think, are her not just coming to terms with it, but but professing it. Like, to me, this is a profession of faith story that's so inscrutable that, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you can call me crazy if you want, but it's like, I feel like the Holy Spirit revealed to me that that's a possible reading of this story. I, it didn't. It wasn't in my head to find. It's like it just came to me as soon as I started rereading it yesterday. Well, Adam is showing us partly what happens when a creative person comes to literary analysis because I think sometimes people who do a lot of literary analysis are more thinking more with the kind of rational, analytical side rather than the creative side of our mind. But you bring your, the creative side of your, your mind, your creative gifts to everything mm-hmm. you do, and so you come up with some pretty outrageous interpretations sometimes, but um, I and like I'm, it. I'm not sure. There's no way to prove that it's true. There's no way to certainly prove it's not true. But I think there's more to these stories because Flannery is in the shadow of death. And so... This idea of the woods are Christ. Okay, well, if the woods are Christ, then Mr. Pitts isn't Christ, but he's, his discipline seems to be holy. So maybe he's God the Father or just like God the Trinity, and, and that it's happening in the woods because it's connected to Christ's suffering. Right. Like Flannery's lupus is making her closer to Christ instead of farther away from Christ. And that Mr. Fortune's success actually distances himself, and he actually wants to obscure the vision of the woods for favor of seeing a gas station. Right. And, it, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're ready to transition, but yeah, it I makes am. me think yeah, yeah. of Judgment Day mm-hmm. being in some ways about a man who um, is the opposite. Like, 
the the place the type of place where you could go conveniently like get gas get groceries kind of everything's like right outside your door is a big city exactly like new york city mm-hmm. and i think mr fortune has got this vision for where he lives being more like that um judgment day is about a man who moves to the big city and just says really there's nothing here and i hate it and, and he, he he has to go th- well We'll, we'll discuss like in that. a moment of weakness, he yeah. it, it kind of consents to go there and regrets it bitterly. Because his, his daughter lives there. Yeah. So it says he had three sons. Two of them died in the war. And one of them, it said uh, the war got two of them and the other one went the, to the devil. Went to the devil. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which may mean, I think, that he's like rebellious and gone, like a prodigal. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I took it as he wasn't dead. He was just in, in some kind of prodigal living and here's the here's this the daughter as the only one to kind of take care of the father. Yeah, she's kind of duty proud herself. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so there is this connection although I guess I'm going to talk about the humor of this more in depth on the last episode, the Omega episode. Um but the humor of these stories is just amazing and the humor of like when Mr. Fortune says he's going to sell the lawn <laughs> and his daughter like has a nervous breakdown basically like she's just like she 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 like faints almost like I would probably do that too though if you were like I've decided I'm going to sell the our front yard to a gas station I would f- flip out I know I know it's <laughs> it the, the lawn um, and it's like just scrub grass. It's nothing, you know, it's not this well-maintained like Tom Buchanan and Great Gatsby, like quarter yeah. mile lawn. But you're right. Like if the lawns where they see the woods, like maybe it's the church or something in this allegory. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. That's, ooh, that's good. That's good. Like we don't need the church anymore in the South. Like I could see Faulkner saying that, yeah. like, you know, it hadn't done us any good, you know. Um, and so Judgment Day is, is happening in New York City. It's about Tanner, and Tanner's the last name, and his daughter. And it's, yet again, the first story of the collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, and this story, Judgment Day, are, are the most explicitly racially based. Would, would you agree? I mean... Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah. I mean, Revelation, Revelation's probably the next thing beneath mm-hmm. that. Revelation is a little bit more about class and race mm-hmm. and not explicitly race or, like, you know, singularly race. This this one's definitely about race. Yeah, and about similar to, I'll go ahead and mention that this is a, a reworking of the first story, as you said, that she had published, The Geranium. Yes. Um, they both have a similar dynamic of a man who is displaced to the north. He's an old man, and he longs for this black friend of his who's still back down south, who I don't think he, in either case, would have really called a friend until mm-hmm. he gets away from the south and realizes that that was his friend, his companion, that he misses him, he needs him. Um, and so he tries to kind of buddy up to a black man who he meets in the apartment building in both stories buddies up to a black man he meets in the apartment building and in in the geranium the black man is just condescending toward him that's about the extent of it and he doesn't like that but it he just treats him like a kind of senile old man 
in Judgment Day, the black man he tries to befriend is really um, brutal to him. Like physically brutal. Yeah, physically yeah. brutal. He humiliates him several times as well. Would you say that he murders him in the end or that he just... Exacerbates his yeah. death. I mean, I think he... Similar to Julian's mother and everything that rises yeah. and converge. Like what he... What you would think he might do in that in that situation at the end of Judgment Day is realize that something's wrong with this man and call for help. What he does instead is seemingly this is how his daughter finds him, um, with his hat pulled down over his face, his heads and arms thrust between the spokes of the banister, his feet dangled over the stairwell like a man in the stocks. To me, it seems like the man he was talking to pulled his hat down over his face and then like stuck him there in this humiliating position and left him, even though something was clearly wrong with him. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, he's an actor, which I mean, to me, I was thinking like, what if this is like Sidney Poitier? Like, oh, I mean, it wouldn't be because Sidney Poitier had like a British accent, but and and Shirley was much kinder than this guy, right? Well, I would I would hope so. Yeah. But uh, but I I just thought about that. Like they call me Mister Tibbs. Um, I just thought that that was oh, because like, he keeps saying like, don't label me that. I'm not that. I'm not a preacher. I'm I'm not yeah, John. Like exactly. he, there's a lot of like stuff about naming. Yeah, yeah. T- Tanner first calls him, hey John, and then he says. Hey, Coleman, because he is getting confused about where right. he is he's and who he's like, yeah. seeing. And he's he, like, I ain't any Coleman either. He's like thinking he's calling him, called him preacher earlier. Now he's calling him Coleman. Yeah. He th- you know, it's just, it's a misunderstanding. It's a comic misunderstanding that takes on really tragic dimensions because they're misunderstanding each other so gravely. Yeah. Like, Tanner is being insensitive and condescending and, yeah. and weird at the beginning, but by the end, he's so weak and he's hallucinating that he's seeing his friend Coleman. It's just a complete misunderstanding and yeah. a really, um, you call it pathetic, you know, when something is aiming high and ends up going really yeah. low, and yeah. that's how this reads to me. Yeah, it's interesting that, to me, okay, Julian's mother has elements of racism that are all about like ranking, but in her in her interaction with an actual person of another race, it's almost like she's trying. I mean, I, I understand that this this could be condescending and and be and come across as hateful, but I think she's trying to humble herself to say, "Let me give you this." Because I want to, I want, I want to bless you. Like I, I, w- I want to give you something so that you can be raised up. In her own limited understanding, she's trying to be sweet. Yes, I think. Yes, and I think actually it's the same thing in this story. In his limited understanding of people and what they're Ooh. going to perceive, Ooh. he's trying to be sweet. Is this story uh, a fleshing out of love your neighbor as yourself? I don't know. What do you mean? Well, that's what I'm asking. Like, does it seem like, you know, he's he's not technically the resident of his own house. He's just staying with his daughter, and he wants to get out as soon as he can. He does certainly wish someone would be friendly to him, I think. Yes. Um, staying out in the hall and, you Yeah, know, he stands out in the hall, like, hoping... Yeah, like, he wishes someone would wait on him and chat with him and spend time with him, I think. Yeah. 
Um, oh, it makes me sad. There's this time where he gets so excited about the prospect of talking to this black neighbor yeah. that he forgets he's not outdoors and spits his tobacco on the baseboards of the the hallway it's like he thought he was outside on the front porch of his old shack again or something Mm -hmm. he's got distracted and excited but it just goes to show like he wishes he were sitting with coleman on the front porch of his shack again and he just wants to recreate that experience a little bit Mm. it's it's you know a little pitiful yeah um but you have a lot of pity, both for him and also in the original story, the geranium is a similar dynamic. Mm-hmm. This, this old man who, he seems really clueless about how to operate in the world that he's in now, for sure. You know, in, in New York City, but he's he's compared to this geranium that's just not flourishing. It's in a little pot, and it's just not flourishing in New York City. And he keeps saying like the geraniums at home were so big and pretty. And huh. he's compared to, he's, you know, connected to this geranium. Like, I just can't flourish here. I don't know how to survive here. At the end of the story of the geranium, the geranium falls off the ledge and smashes onto the sidewall. And it almost is this eerie, almost like, is it a foreshadowing that he's going to jump out the window? I thought that when I read it, Ooh, you know, that wow. he's not going to be able to take it anymore being mm. there. Um, that the city's going to kind of just destroy him by not allowing him to, to, to thrive and, you know, and, be himself. And, and Flannery O'Connor is writing that story. I don't know if she'd ever been to New York when she wrote that story. Like, I know that she moves to New York after Iowa. Or no, I think she goes to Yaddo first and then to New York City. Um, so she could have been there. But yeah, like, Duranium was published in the summer of 1946. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking it was 47. It's anyway. the opening story in the typescript of her master's thesis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So it's... Um, it's published separately in 47, like as, you know, standalone. Um, and it's in her master's thesis for, um, for the Iowa workshop. So, um, judgment day. And what I want to talk about this idea of why rewrite a story. Um, cause I think just like there are big questions about the, a view of the woods. I think this story has a, has a similar, like what, what was she doing here? And I think that the stories that have those questions sometimes can yield much more rich answers, just like we talked about with uh, A View of the Woods. And I think Absalom Absalom is, that that whole novel is an answer to why do you hate the South? And Quentin's like, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Let me give you 300 pages of like what the South is like. And, um, and I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult book to read, and obviously we talked about it for eight episodes last summer, but Flannery O'Connor's stories are much easier to read in their syntax, but I think that some of them are just as inscrutable um, and have to really be, I think you really have to know a lot to be able to bring enough to the story to get out the, you know, the, the richness of the truth that, that's in it. And so, you know, in Absalom Absalom, William Faulkner is is diving headfirst into the deep end of the antebellum South and the Civil War and the, the Reconstruction South and just, like, the Lost Cause South, like the South up until 1910. And, of course, he's writing it in the 30s, in the middle of the Great Depression. And he's writing it, it you know, it's published the same year as, as Gone with the Wind. And really, that concept of, like, he's trying to capture the South in a novel 
Well, Flannery O'Connor actually captures a lot of what the South is like in Judgment Day in a short story by contrasting it with life in the North. And so, obviously, there are lots of different ways to live in the North. And, and by now, I feel like you could live just as city slicker a life in Nashville or Atlanta or Raleigh or, or Charlotte or, you know, maybe even Birmingham or Louisville as you could in what New York was like in the 30s. Like, not as many tall buildings, but... I think there's a sense of we have caught up to the urbanity of the, the, the big cities of the North, but those have also progressed. And so uh, New York is even more international than it used to be. It's even more uh, lucrative to, you know, to work there, and it's even more costly to, to live there. And clearly this woman, the, the Tanner's daughter, I mean, she doesn't seem to work, right? It's just her husband drives a moving truck. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, she wants him to put on airs, I guess you would say. Yeah. Like, she wants him to get a nice hat instead of wearing this, like, leather cap that he wears to work and things like that. And he just laughs at her because he doesn't see the point in putting on airs, trying to to prove your social class and things like that. I think as a Southerner, she still has that sense of it's just important to reinforce that... I am a a person of social standing as a, a white person, yes. of social standing, not a white trash person. That if um, you wear a hat, you reflect the knowledge that it is more gentlemanly to wear a hat mm-hmm. than to be bald, you know, to, to not wear a hat. And he or, wears a hat indoors. Yeah. Tanner wears a hat indoors. Um, and the son-in-law thinks that's absurd. It says the son-in-law had a stupid muscular face and a Yankee voice to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like some of the things that the son-in-law says, he kind of, he kind of sounds like a more grown-up version of Holden Caulfield. Um, so he's got this northern attitude that I think you know. Well, Flannery O'Connor is contrasting to a southern attitude, which is like scoffing, I would say, yes, humorous, not taking himself too seriously, not taking anyone else too seriously. I think the South is actually full of people taking themselves too seriously. I think that that's an interesting point because the South thinks of cities like New York or even L.A. as places where people take themselves too seriously. But the problem is, is the zeitgeist of the South, even in 2021, there's still this element of like, like I mentioned, I can't remember which episode we're talking about it, but that concept of a lady that like, training a young woman to know what it means to be a lady. Kind of stand upon your dignity a little bit with people and seem, you know, don't make light of me. Don't make sport of me. Don't take advantage. Like, don't sort of um, treat me lightly. I'm a lady. Yeah. Yeah. And so this story is about a Southerner that, that has basically renounced her Southerness and her father who is 100% Southern and wants nothing of the North. And then you have this Northern African-American, and then you have Coleman, the Southern African-American. It's interesting in the story, this, um, you know, letter that he leaves, he leaves in his jacket that Tanner wants found. It says, if found dead, ships express collect to Coleman Parham, Corinth, Georgia, which makes me think, Corinthians, you know, first and second Corinthians in the Bible. Under this, he had continued, Coleman, sell my belongings and pay the freight on me and the undertaker. 
Anything left you can keep. Yours truly, T.C. Tanner. P.S. Stay where you are. Don't let them talk you into coming up here. It's no kind of place. I thought that was really powerful reading that this time around because, I mean, I like New York a lot. I, I, I feel like I could I could make it in New York. I don't know why. I just There's something about the challenge of making it in New York makes me want to be up for the challenge more than making it in some place that's not as challenging to make it as New York. Like, like you, you rise to the level of your competition. And I do think that there are some people that have made it in New York that, you know, I know from Nashville or from Augusta or from Chattanooga and, and or even from college at UGA. And, you know, more power to you, you know? Like, I, you know, I, I root for you to succeed and flourish, and yet I know the degree to which you can succeed and flourish in New York is so limited because you cannot... You cannot have a house on Manhattan, you know? And so that there is the difference between Tanner being where he was in Corinth versus where he is. He's like, nobody can even have a house here. I like how he imagines having Coleman in New York with him at one point. Yes. And mm-hmm. he thinks, he, I think he thinks he feels that he'd, he'd feel more in control and more safe and more powerful if he had Coleman there to show around. He says, yes. I wish I could show mm-hmm. Coleman around. Um, he says he'd be giving Coleman advice, like keep to the inside or these people will knock you down and you know, keep right behind me or you'll get left and keep your hat yeah. on. He really wants to. And that makes total sense to me. I mean, yeah. granted the fact that he's put Coleman in this role in his life, he clearly depends on Coleman a lot, but he doesn't want right, to admit it. Right. So he acts like Coleman is like pitiful and depends on him. But I, I see what he means. Like, if I were to move to New York and feel overwhelmed, but then suddenly one of my relatives or like a young person or just someone who'd never been there came and I was showing them around, I would suddenly feel more confident. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I know some things, yeah. you know. I'm, yeah. I'm the expert in this situation. And, I mean, I've I've been guilty of that. Like, oh, I've been in New York once, so let me, sh- <laughs> let me show you a newcomer. Like, oh, I know where that is. Um, and sure enough, like, I've given people good directions in New York. It's because you're good at giving directions, well, though. You, it's like a mental map. But it's really just because I study the map. But, um, but I, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, like, <laughs> I can tell someone how to get someplace where I don't live is, is a huge sense of, like, pride and, and, and like, like, I have this understanding that's really, I mean, you just put it in your Google Maps and you go, you know, I mean. And I get the impression he'd be saying the same things to Coleman that his daughter said to him, which is like, now yeah, you stay right behind me point. or you're going to mm-hmm. get left. Yeah. <laughs> things yeah. like that. Yeah. Keep to the inside or these people will knock you down. And it's interesting that like, when we think about it in terms of like the daughter saying it to the father, we think that it's good advice. But if we think of it as Tanner telling it to Coleman, all of a sudden it has this racial component. And you know, Flannery O'Connor is limited to the time period she's writing. I mean, she she's not writing in 2021 uh, racial relations mode. She's writing in, you know, this story is published posthumously, so she's, she's finishing it or doing her best to finish it while she's dying of lupus, um, which, you know, if you want to be judgmental of Flannery O'Connor for, like, I don't know, having stories that use the N-word or whatever, like, how about trying some compassion for someone that has lupus? Like, 
it's great to have compassion for other races, and I think it's built. You know, it, it's like that's part of what the Christian faith is so beautiful about is that it really does preach true equality, and it preaches that we have true you know, equity in Christ, that, that like the laborer that comes in the 11th hour gets the same wage as the laborer that was there from the first hour, because that's, it's not about our work. It's about the payment. It, it, it's about the reward that the owner has that is, that is grace through Christ. And so, you know, racial relations will, will never be fixed without Christianity. And yet my vision for it is it's a one-to-one. I've got to treat every person of every race with with dignity. It's it's not like, oh, I just have this blanket dignity for everybody and you just get one thread of it. It's like I've got to give you your own blanket. It's, it's hard to see as a person living today that this man who's using the N-word, part of what he is saying is that, well, I'll just read a a quotation that I think encapsulates what is part of what he's saying that actually is a pretty radical perspective on race mm-hmm. for his time and place. Um, two, two things, off, both from the same page. The doctor who owns the land that Tanner and Coleman are squatting mm-hmm. on um, says, the day coming when the white folks is going to be working for the colored and you might swell to get ahead of the crowd. That day ain't coming for me, Tanner said shortly. Done come for you, the doctor said. <laughs> ain't come yep. for the rest of them. Um, and Tanner at that moment says, I got a daughter in the north. I don't have to worry for you. His pride comes out mm-hmm. in that moment. Um, but can I just, I'll just pause and say that what he's talking about, the day is coming when the white folks is going to be working for the colored. He's talking about Judgment Day when the last is first and the first is last. Oh, that's good. Mm. And at the bottom of that page, it says, Tanner had continued to look across the field as if his spirit had been sucked out of him into the woods. The woods. (laughs) And nothing was left on the chair but a shell. Mm. If he had known it was a question of this, sitting here looking out of this window all day in this no place, or just running a still for an N-word, he would have run the still for the N-word. Mm. He would have been an N-words white N-word any day. Mm. Now, Flannery O'Connor in several stories makes the point that the N-word refers to a person who is considered less than human or Mm -hmm. considered the absolute bottom of the hierarchy. It doesn't really matter in practice, whether your skin is white or black it, in, the, in the South, yeah. it matters how people think of you. So, like, I read a little article about this, and it, it referred to um, Mr. Dolphus Raymond, I think his name is, and Dakota Mockingbird, who has a kind of, like, woman who's sort of his unofficial wife yes. who's black. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. He, get, he gets treated like he's not a member of the white race because yes. he's associated with this black, he's like a black family. And he pretends to be an alcoholic and pretends to drink out of a bottle of liquor all the time. And it's not even really liquor because he says, oh, that gives the white people a convenient excuse for why I am the way I am and they don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. Um, he's considered an N-word, sort of, like, socially, mm-hmm. as are the sort of, like, Yule white trash type people. Right, Like, I right. think that book is almost trying to rewrite, and without being this crass, say, well, 
it's all about the content of your character and, you know, mm. and inward is just any person who doesn't have any self-respect or respect for other people or like, we yeah. need to rewrite the definition. And I think that's kind of how Tanner's thinking of it too. If we strip away this like offensive, hurtful language, what he's slowly realizing is that he would have been much, much happier just submitting himself to this black doctor yeah. and working for him and humbling himself and rethinking his categories for people yeah. and admitting that he's friends with Coleman and that mm -hmm. Coleman means a lot to him. So when he's having this dream sequence about riding down back to Georgia in this coffin and then popping out alive as like a little surprise for Coleman yeah. and then saying, it's judgment day, he's saying... Hey, I work for you now. That's fine. Like we're equal mm. now. That's fine. Like he has a new vision for that. Yeah, and I, I just think that that's when whenever you uh, box someone in with you know a, a label like racist, you know the, the thing is is you're determining whether or not they have uh, the capacity to change. Um, it's just not. I mean, to me. <laughs> Thinking in terms of how much racism does someone have as relative to how much value do they have, that is a religion. And to me, that's not a religion worth putting your faith in because ultimately you start to see like, oh, Tanner's uh, daughter, she's just as racist as he is. He actually lives in a house with a black person where she's like, she, she treats him like trash. I think it says she thinks of him like a pile of dung or something. Yeah, it says so she has to get language. 10 feet away for, because of the, the stench of, not, not the literal stench, but like she feels like it's just, like what he said, dung to see a black man and a white man living in a house together. And, and then, you know, she says, oh, well, we just keep to our own business and everybody gets along in New York. And because you ignore each other. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know, to, to any New York listeners, like, like I said, I, I really enjoy New York. But New York <laughs> is just a place where there's not a lot of love to go around. And there's not a lot of truth to go around either because there's so much pride. And, and that it, it, it is a pride that says, I can't know my neighbors I don't want them to get to know me. I'm going to keep to my own business. You know, that, that's, that's actually the same kind of self-segregating mindset that the South has been judged so harshly for ever since the Civil War. And, and you know, I, I think we've had to learn a lot of lessons in the South as Southerners that Northerners haven't had to learn yet. And it's just a matter of, like, well, when are they going to learn it? Are, you know, are they going to learn it in Judgment Day? Like... Uh, there's a part of me that, that's like, well, I'd rather them learn it now so they don't have to learn it, you know, in the end times. But the the reality is that the end times will come at some point. And, you know, I, I don't I don't wait with bated breath for like, oh, man, the trumpet's going to sound before I finish this podcast. Because I just I just trust that God's not ready for it to happen yet based on the, the truth that he's revealed in scripture. And so I know no one will know the time of the hour or the day of the hour, but, but I feel like there are things that have to happen based on what Christ has said that, that if it were to happen right this moment, it would actually negate truth 
and so therefore I don't think it's going to happen until the truth is is manifest fully. Um, and so this story, it's interesting that Whitney brings it up, this like concept of judgment day as like a, a prank. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about that. Like, will people think it's a prank when all the Christians are gone because of the rapture? Well, like the way his daughter says, this part was funny to me. Um, you need some inspiration and an outlet. If you would let me pull your chair around to look at the TV, you would quit thinking yes, about morbid stuff, yes. death and hell and judgment. Um, like, it's hilarious to think about. You need some inspiration. You you need an outlet for your energies. TV. That'll be it. But that he, you know, I think she does have, she's kind of a mouthpiece for a, a pretty typical modern perspective, which is just, it's morbid to think about religious things and think about death too much. Think about, certainly think about hell and judgment. Just ignore it. Forget about it. Who cares? Yeah. Um, I do think in the story, he's kind of wavering back and forth between his pride and then being humbled by his circumstances to such a degree that he, he kind of can't hold on to his pride anymore. Because, like, he says the judgment is coming. The sheep will be separated from the goats. Them that kept their promises from them that didn't. Them that did the best they could with what they had from them that didn't. Them that honored their father and mother from them that cursed them. He's he's not talking about the gospel here. He's talking about this kind of legalistic, like, people who have failed me will get judged one day. Ha, ha, ha. That's his vision for Judgment Day at that point. But I think he's being humiliated repeatedly in this story to the point where it's like working on him to to humble his pride, whereas his daughter is like, why even think about such things? Well, and and then he brings it up, you know, because he he keeps calling this guy preacher, which, I mean, it's like, it's... It's ignorant to call someone something that you don't know that they are. And it's like a manipulative tool he's used in the past to yeah, get... Yeah, that's a good one. Because he yeah, it yeah. talks about he had to use all his wits in order to like yes, control. Yes. He felt very like weak and out of control with his workers, and he had to use all his wits to control them. And one tactic it says he uses is calling them preacher because it feels respectful yeah. to them. Because in the South, it seems like the average like black worker he's going to talk to is going to have respect for preachers as a category and find it respectful to be called preacher, you know, whereas in this world, that's not the case at all. Like the, the actor says directly, like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus either. Like, shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't take no crap. He whispered off. No wool hat, redneck, son of a peck of wood, old bastard like you. And then he says, I'm not even no Christian. I'm sorry, I'm not no preacher. I'm, I'm not even no Christian. I don't believe that crap. There ain't no Jesus and there ain't no God. And, and it's interesting that Tanner has brought out what this man truly believes. And you might say like, oh, well, that's not being loving to someone. But I actually think it's better t- to love someone by making them profess their true faith in whatever that is, because then they can start to realize who they are. If you, if you are an atheist and you don't know it, I mean, Lord have mercy on you, because that concept of you have no idea why you're doing what you're doing. You have no idea what's, you know, what the future holds, why the past happened. Everything is random, you know, and, and, and this idea of everything is relative. It's like, well, 
you know, when you start saying that dignity is relative, then you start to say that some people deserve more dignity than others, and you should be able to treat people as second-class citizens if you want because of this or that reason. And that's, you know, Christianity counters that. And and um, even though Tanner is not explicitly trying to evangelize to this man, he's being an agent of God's grace to this man in the same way that we've seen in a lot of these stories. That Tanner is not the Holy One. He's certainly faulted, right? But he is actually the one that opens someone else up to God. And, you know, sometimes that's just your role in someone's life. Like, you didn't know that you were doing it, but God, you know, God puts you in that person's life to open them to his message or his word or his love or or his truth you know, independent of what you were going to bring to the table. And Tanner, in his death, you know, now this actor is going to have this on his hands the rest of his life. Like, he's probably not going to go to jail for it. But now he's going to always think, like, oh, that's the banister where that guy, you know, died. And, and, and now he's got to think about mortality. Now he's got to think about what happened to that man after he died. Did he deserve to die? There's this shocking moment. I don't know why that made me think of this, but there's a shocking moment, I think, as a modern reader, where you, you're bracing yourself to be, like, really offended and horrified, but then you realize what's going on, um, where it's talking about Coleman and what he looks like, mm-hmm. you know, as an old man. And it says the old Negro was curled up on a pallet asleep at the foot of Tanner's bed, which even that, like, he sleeps on a pallet and mm-hmm. Tanner sleeps on a bed, like... The dynamic between them is intimate and exploitative. Yeah, and there's a power uh, hierarchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a stinking skin full of bones, that's Coleman, arranged in what seemed vaguely human forms. It's really dehumanized, and you're like, oh, yeah. you know, where's this going? And then it says when Coleman was young, he looked like a bear. Now that he was old, he looked like a monkey. And then you're like, oh, no, like, where is this going? Like, even further dehumanized in a way that's really fraught with negative associations and you know it's awful but then it says when tanner with tanner it was the opposite when he was young he looked like a monkey but when he got old he looked like a bear and he realized oh this white protagonist is also being dehumanized in exactly the same way and they're being like doubled and twinned and i wrote i am become you next to that yeah so it it's like she she raises your anxiety about what she's doing racially and then she like complicates it and makes you think oh and that's that's an interesting point that you raised because like I read that and I thought like oh I could see you know that that word might trigger someone but reading this story it doesn't trigger me because I read the context and yet if you read that and saw a black person being compared to a monkey what you're doing by saying that that's offensive in that moment is you're actually buying into the mindset that says there's some evolutionary difference between white people and black people. And, you know, I don't believe that because my worldview says that God created all people and that all people have the same dignity and have different gifts. Now, you know, there are people of every race with, with academic intelligence. There are people of every race with athletic intelligence, with uh, creative intelligence, you know, with um, emotional intelligence. And so, you know, whenever you start trying to 
you know, recategorize those and put, put one race with one or the other, um, you're falling into that trap of like, oh, well, it's better to have academic intelligence than it is to have, um, you know, athletic or kinetic in, intelligence. And, and, and that's just not true. It's like, well, you know, some academic intelligence doesn't get you very far in life and some, uh, some kinetic or athletic intelligence gets you very far in life. Um, and that, you know, that can go for any race of person. And so this idea of like, if we see that and get triggered, it's our own prejudice that, that we're, we're bringing to the story instead of letting just the story speak for itself with the context that it has in the story rather than the context we bring to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause like in the story, I think it's pretty clear that these two are in a power struggle. Basically I would say Tanner's kind of in a power struggle with everyone he meets, you know, he thinks in terms of power a lot. Yeah. Um, but right after that part, I just read the doctor walks up and the doctor is um, at least, you know, partly black and clearly has um, the upper hand. He's talking about Dr. Foley, the landowner. he has the power. And then not long after that, we're told um, Tanner, again, he looked, this is Coleman, again, he looked directly at Tanner and grinned or grimaced. Tanner could not tell which, but he had an instant sensation of seeing before him a negative image of himself as if clownishness and captivity had been their common lot. So they're tied together. Neither of them has that, we've been talking about dignity. Neither of them feels a lot of dignity. Neither of them feels free. Neither of them feels powerful. And then on the same page later, it says, he had not got rid of Coleman since. You make a monkey out of one of them, and he jumps on your back and stays there for life, but let one make a monkey out of you, and all you can do is kill him or disappear. Mm-hmm. And so he's, it's basically saying this power struggle between a white man and a black man can go either way. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it actually, the, the violence of killing is portrayed as being out of a place of weakness instead of a place of strength, Interesting. interestingly enough. Um, but it seems like he feels as if he has got won the power struggle with Coleman. Um, but then by the end of the story, he has been bested and power struggles over and over again. Um, except for at the very end of the story where he beyond the grave manages to get his daughter to bury him in the South, I guess he wins that power struggle. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. Like, uh, you know, the violence or like killing of of a person comes from a place of weakness rather than a place of strength. I actually think that that's true. Like the more I think about it, I I mean, this may not be like a be all end all statement, but like, for example, the governments that, you know, execute people, they're doing that out of a, a position of fear, out of a position of we better get rid of them or else instead of a, if you truly have power, then you subjugate the, the, the weak, right? You, the powerful use the weak. They don't destroy them because who's going to work for them, right? And so I think that's a that's a big thing about... I think you're seeing someone as more of a threat if you have to eliminate yeah, them and yeah. you can't just exploit them. And so, you know, you look at, like, the people that have been, you know, executed by government or obviously, like, Jesus is the number one example in history of, like, you know, uh, if you destroy me, I'll become more powerful than you could ever imagine, like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, 
I think that this idea of like the most powerful government in the history of the world executed a homeless carpenter. No one would hear that detail and be like, they were really afraid. (laughs) And yet, look what happened. You know, 2021, Christianity still exists. Roman Empire been dead for 1500 years you know and 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 just the context of the things that we we think of as like oh that was a great atrocity and and I agree it's like we shouldn't use destructive means if we can help it because you know we're, we're going to be accountable for those destructive means. Now, it might be destructive in a language way, like the N-word, or it might be destructive in a violent way, like killing someone, like in, um, in the, A View of the Woods. Or, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways that, can, that we can be violent toward one another. And yet, I think that this story shows, like, God, God can work through anything. Like, if it was God's permissive will that Tanner be buried in Georgia it just goes to show that the 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 daughter can't sleep at night after he's buried in New York so that that God allows the daughter to kind of be restless until she realizes I need to honor my father it makes sense yeah this is another story about how God works in the world among flawed people, deeply flawed people, people who misunderstand him, misunderstand themselves. He still works among them. He still cares. He still takes time to, to humble people, even though they don't want to be humble because that's what's good for them. And it's interesting to think about, you know, like I mentioned, why would you rewrite a story you've already written? And I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I think that Flannery actually rewrites this, this story as an attempt to show regeneration. Like, this is the beginning, like, I mean, this is a really, like, out there theory, but she's rewriting this story to show she will have a new body, right? She, she, she will be regenerated in eternity, and in, you know, Judgment Day, there will be true change and that this story didn't need to be rewritten but that it's it's almost like her eternal spirit is is starting the work of the kinds of things that she's doing in eternity which maybe it's writing maybe it's I don't know what she's doing in heaven right now but I'm you know certain that she's there and maybe this was her way of saying like well, I, you know, I'm just going to go back to the beginning and just rewrite my story to add more glory to God. And, and you know, to what extent does that come through clearly? I don't think it's like an obvious homage to her faith. But I think what it is is she's showing that just as she is rewriting a story and saying that I know I published that, but I can do better, it's like she's sanctifying the story that we're sanctified, you know, as we are sanctified on earth and will be perfected in our sanctification in eternity. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's like the man is 
the old man in um, Judgment Day is so much more humiliated, so much more yeah. violently handled and humiliated yeah. in the story than in the geranium. And I think maybe she, the life experiences she had gone through had shown her that God can sometimes allow like way rougher treatment than you ever would have imagined in order to like yeah. humble you, prepare you for Judgment Day or something like that. And I just think about like this is no place to live there's such a loaded phrase in that because what if she's saying... Ooh, like, is it utopia? Is that where you were going with this? Well, like, it, utopia it, means no place? Ooh, I, I wasn't thinking that. But I guess I was thinking, like, the kingdom of the earth is no place to live. That the place uh, to live is in the kingdom of heaven. Right, right. And, you know, she, her character is saying something literal... But she could be, by extension, saying something metaphorical. Yeah, which, I mean, I think also fits with the utopia idea just because, you know, Thomas More called his imaginary place utopia no place because it can exist. This, like, idealized place, mm-hmm. the, the dream place, the perfect place. And New York is the dream place, the perfect place for so many kids from, like, backwaters and small cities and you know, rural areas who mm-hmm. just want to feel like they're somebody, like they belong, and, and that language is used in the story, being somebody. Yeah, and this idea of, like, I will be, you know, I, I'm not uh, appreciated for my artistic talents in my little city or town, or I'm not appreciated for my um, desire to make, you know, a lot of money in my little town. What Whatever it is that draws you to New York... And I want to prove I belong there instead of here. Yes, yes. That somehow it's better to belong in New York than it is to belong in your place of origin. And I think that that's just, like I said, that comes from pride. I think that there are people that belong in New York, and they're the ones that have jobs that make New York keep going. You know, those jobs are the same everywhere, right? But there are all these things in New York that are artificial. And so that's why I said earlier that New York is an artificial place. It, it, it is artificially large. It is artificially competitive. It is artificially um, uh, international. It feels a little artificially compact, like people are living yes, too, yes. like in a pigeon hutch, the story says. Yes, but, you know, yes. too, too many people per square mile. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. like Tower of Babel style, like too Ooh, much. That's good. Mm. And, and just the idea of like all you have to look out your window is like a brick wall yeah. or an alley. And, um, and, and, you know, countering this with a view of the woods, it's like you actually think about God more when you see nature yeah. than when you look at a brick building or, or, or yeah. steel building. Like human creations can be beautiful and can be inspired, but there's this mediation maybe, you know, whereas God's creation is, so complex I mean you think about you look at a forest of pine trees each one's actually unique and distinctive every pine tree that's ever lived you know that's remarkable to think about and I know the same is true of every brick in a building you know that's true Um, but I just think that there is a sense of nature is going to regenerate itself and maintain its power whether we do anything or not whereas human buildings just kind of fall prey to entropy really quickly and just huh. kind of disintegrate and crumble eventually. As we if you are don't on the precipice of the Olympics, like the worst examples of, yeah. you know, 
I mean, when you think about spending a billion dollars on a stadium and then it's outdated in 20 years, like, dude, the Coliseum is still there. It's been around 2,000 years. Like, make it to last and and don't settle for, well, we need to change it. It's like, you know. Or we need to get it up quickly. Yeah. And with as much savings as possible, which yeah. I think is probably the, the guiding you know, those are like the guiding lights of the Olympic Committee. Yeah. And I think about like, like the, the, the Chart Cathedral is, is um, a cathedral with an unknown designer. Like they, they don't know who was the actual architect of it, but the, the, one of the stones on it says, for the glory of God and the dignity of man. And, you know, when I think about that, it's like, that's what New York can be. And it's like people like Tim Keller have a vision for New York, being for the glory of God and the dignity of man. And I, I think that New York has its own ways of showing dignity to one another mm-hmm. that the South doesn't. And, and you know, it's it's not a judgment on New York. Yeah. And Tim Keller makes the point that the New Jerusalem is a city and that there's a reason God pictures such as a city. He yeah. says, in a city, there are just more people. And in the New Jerusalem, you're going to want to be around as many people as possible because people's oh, relationships are going to be so harmonious mm-hmm. and you're, people are going to be redeemed and regenerated and you're going to be so, rather than being like kind of taxed and burdened by the mass of humanity, you're going to be so excited about all these 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 people. You want to be yeah. with people. And so I think that's why I would like are, want to live yeah. in New York because like, I love being around people. Like cities, <laughs> city, cities aren't sort of evil and mm-hmm. the country good. That's not a, in any way a fair yeah. dichotomy. I think the thing about living where nature is accessible, you know, I'm looking out my office window as we're making this podcast and I see all these trees and I'm thinking they breathe out, I breathe in. I breathe out, they breathe in. We need each other. That brick building doesn't need me. You know, the bricks don't need me continuously they might have needed me to build up the wall but the thing about man-made structures is a lot of times they just exist but they don't give life you know whereas a a tree exists and gives life and receives life um it will break through the bricks of this building if we stop maintaining this building true you know like the vegetation will just Push yeah. back through yeah. these sidewalks and these foundations eventually. And I think about like you know a, a cathedral is a it can be a great testament to how strong a, a city's faith is, right? Like the Shark Cathedral is a, is a testament to in the 1200s, the people of Shark really loved God and wanted to honor Him and, and glorify Him through their their church, and yet. It's a museum now. Like, I know that people still worship there, but it's like France is a very godless place now. It's not a place where, like, the gospel is really, you know, taking root and and it is changing lives. It's a place where that happened, you know, centuries ago, and and a lot of people abandoned it. And sadly, New York is, is, you know, one of the most godless places in America. And and I think Flannery O'Connor is pointing to New York in the end of her life and saying there's still hope for this place. There's still a point for this place, but what, you know, will it be for the glory of God or will it be for the glory of man? And, you know, I, I just think there's just a, a desire, burning desire in the heart of man to, to, to be worshiped 
and to and to be validated not just as a person but to be validated as a king and you know there's a lot of freedom from that in faith in Christ because you can point to the real king and say Christ is the king and I am the servant on earth and the son in heaven like I, I'm 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 co-inheritor with Christ in eternity but on earth I'm holding on to the tree while you know my ankles get whipped with the belt or I'm you know sitting in the chair looking out the window at the brick wall you know that that sometimes on earth our suffering is just hard to to stomach and yet we have we have hope if if you know Christ you you have hope for time that that stretches way longer than, you know, the length of time you could live in the city of your dreams or to to have the relationship of your dreams or the job of your dreams or, you know, the the number of children and the family life of your dreams. Like all those things are going to pass away, but faith doesn't. And so I think Flannery O'Connor, even in her, you know, deathbed writing with this story in Parker's Back, as we'll talk about in a couple episodes, she's really pointing us to the that there is inherent purpose in life there's inherent meaning in life and that death has meaning and so in this story even though i don't feel like it's like an overtly christian faith tale it's a story about death having meaning and not only death but like burial having meaning like where where tanner gets buried it is is subject to God's will and not just his, his daughter's will. And you, there's a sense that his um, daughter and son-in-law are like, oh, who cares what you do with your carcass when you die? Like, you know, yeah, you, his daughter's like, just bury me right there. Yeah, you kick the bucket. Like, I'm not going to be a, a trouble to anybody about where I'm buried. Who cares? Um, but that does suggest that, like, you're just a body and your life doesn't really matter. And... Um, it's funny that Tanner can't seem to quite imagine himself dead. Like, even when he imagines his coffin being sent back to Georgia, he's, like, scratching around in there like, hey, yep. y'all, it's yep. Judgment Day. You know, I resurrected <laughs> already. Um, but just that sense that, like, you have a spirit, you're not just a body, does yeah. kind of infiltrate the story. Yeah. So that's Judgment Day and A View of the Woods. The next episode we're going to discuss The Lame Shall Enter First, which might be my favorite short story of all time. Uh, certainly the first time I read it, I was just like, I, this story is as good to me as Dr. Pepper Zero is, or Cadbury Eggs, or whatever other things that are wonderful. Um, and so we'll talk about that one at length. It's it's the longest story in the collection, and uh, we'll actually talk about it. Um, it connects to The Violent Barrett Away, her novel uh, that pub- was published in 1960, and um, we'll also talk about it in, in connection to The Displaced Person, which is the longest story in A Good Man's Hunter to Find, that collection. Um, just briefly, like, I'm not, like, wanting to make a, a big parallel, but I just wanted to, like, talk about why write a longer story, if that makes sense. Um, and so uh, we'll discuss Shepard and what's his son's name? It's not Nelson. Uh, it's it, not Nelson. It is Nelson. It sounds right. It is Nelson. <laughs> Shepard, Nelson, and Rufus Johnson. Uh, we'll talk about them on the next episode, so we'll look forward to, to that, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.